Interlude I had not noticed the standard accommodations of the concourse before. Perhaps it was because my presence in the Dakaseri was repetitive, but brief. I had never felt the need to eat, to sleep, to eliminate waste. I assumed none of that was necessary in this spiritual realm. I was wrong. In this particular experience, I found myself bored with mundanity and wandered from the viewing seats to the concourse. For the first time, I now actually inspected its broad expanses and its amenities. It had every convenience to which I was accustomed in life. Small shops nestled between larger food courts, graphic displays guiding access to seating overlooking particular communities, neighborhoods, cities, continents, and even whole worlds. There were small lounges with alcoves and comfortable seating, all hidden away from public view. I learned more clearly that the grand tiers towering above the concourse were adapted to other physiques and respirations, that there were other concourses serving other digestions and other sensory preferences. There were whole sections in total darkness whose observers observed with sound, or auras, or other strange stimuli. There was seating, or its equivalent, for eight-legged behemoths, and by extension pools that hosted eight-finned leviathans. On the other hand, the signage was in Anglic, usually a jumble, but when I focused, it was clear and concise, and exactly what I wanted to know. In some cases it changed as I looked transforming into better, clearer presentations. I passed thousands of fellow observers. Most were humans. Many were strange sofants I vaguely remembered seeing while in life or when I was awakened. They looked at the signage and clearly understood it as well. Yet they could not all know just Anglic. One alcove had been commandeered by a small group of yellowish sevenpeds with eyes on stalks. They watched the crowd and physically accosted any of their own kind dragging them into their small recess to violently gesture some obscure message before letting them go. In others, various sofans rested or slept or slumped in stupors. I found what I thought was a shop, but soon saw it was more like a low-tech data pack, its walls lined with books of all shapes and sizes. I randomly selected one which fell open in my hands. On the visible page of many gray lines of text, my own name stood out in black. Jonathan Bland, Human, 301-277 to 102-336. I flipped pages and randomly found entries for my wife, for our children, and even for our grandchildren. I selected another of the books, this one with a title, Wiseman's Guide to the Sofants. It fell open to a page on humanity, which told me facts which seemed new to me, some details on natural psionics predilections, and a note positing that some humans may have a latent sense of awareness. I had a nagging thought that I had seen that comment somewhere before. I started to leave, but as I returned the book to its space, it jammed half open, and as I manipulated it, I smoothed the wrinkled page, the lalawali of Junity, those strange sofans with balls of white hair atop five spindly legs, their peculiar respiratory needs meant that they wore protective suits even when in human company, or that humans wore protective suits when in Lullawally company. I browsed for a while and then returned to the concourse. I walked aimlessly, observing the public as I strolled. What I noticed most were family groups, archons, be they patriarchs, matriarchs, autarchs, 
or some other elders, flanked by dutiful offspring, trailed by additional generations, and orbited by rebellious youth, occasional prodigals, and reprobates. Some strode with great purpose to unseen destinations. Others chatted happily as they walked. Yet others stood and discussed matters in varying degrees of animation. The Quick's Path The knot foam is interspersed around or overlaid upon existence. Here, in existence, is a chair. Next to it, or all around it, is a foam of unrealized dozens of not chairs, those that could have been, or might have been, or should have been, but are not. The not foam at its most fundamental level is everything that isn't, enveloping everything that is. 299-630, aboard C.F. Jimaway, above Itvi Sector, 1931, Seattle, E. 786 Unknown 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 Dash 4 Garden World Farming World Who here is senior? You are, Agent. Who is next, senior? Captain Nisnady, Agent. And the briefer? That would be me. I'm Lieutenant Orloff. The briefing was relatively simple. Our rather small, fast cruiser Jimaway was patrolling the coreward perimeter of the Imperium on a six-year mission. It had chased Varga Corsairs, updated charts on a variety of worlds, helped a few communities in the name of interstellar comedy, rescued a few Imperial citizens from dire situations, and generally made the Imperial presence known to client states and non-aligned worlds alike. The underlying focus was intelligence gathering, determining attitudes, trends, issues, and problems that might impact the Empire. So much for foundations. The latest jump, a simple four-parsec transit, had gone wrong. It happens. Time and jump in this naval-tuned cruiser was supposed to be a week, plus or minus a fiftieth. Alas, this time when the timer hit 164, there was no sign of breakout, and when it passed 171, the astrogator formally declared a concern. The pre-breakout rumblings finally started at 2.03, and the jump ended at 2.04. In a strange system... Twenty unauthorized parsecs inside the Jordani border, in the remoter regions of that system's Oort, near a small farming world orbiting a dull spectral M, being welcomed on the comms by a lord of the consulate. The computer, not knowing what to make of this situation, registered an exception through some subroutine and told Captain Nisnity to activate me. Thank you, Lieutenant, for that very capable and informative briefing. It had been less than an hour since breakout. Have you answered him? Acknowledged his hails? The captain replied in the negative. Then let's talk to him. I stood off to the side while Nisnetty responded. The translator functions did a capable job, captioning everything in dual lines of Anglic and Volani across the bottom of the maiden display and on individual consoles. A comtech oversaw the process, evaluating word choices where necessary. The audio was a quiet rush of the T's and L's and vocal clicks that characterized language from this strange branch of humanity, while Standard Anglic told us what he was saying. I noted two elements of the process. First, this communication was friendly, unalarmed, even welcoming. None of us expected this from someone with whom we were in grave conflict and on whose territory we were encroaching uninvited. Second, he spoke as if we were expected. No, not as if. He had expected us. 
and was pleased that we were here. We were invited to come visit. I suspected that one element in my activation was the ship's fuel status. Upon arrival, our tanks, except for some basic housekeeping reserves, were dry. There were no nearby ice chunks, no nearby gas giants, asteroids, water, fuel, except on the world below. Tell him that we accept. In orbit above Seattle, that was this world's name, we could see a nice planet with an uncharacteristically dense atmosphere, vast ranges of frontier, and a small settlement nestled in a sheltered mountain valley to which all roads led. The place looked, and probably was, self-sufficient. There was little, actually no evidence of frequent trade. At first, we mistook the community's central plaza for the spaceport. It was sturdy bedrock, carefully marked in concentric circles and spots and spaces. Our sensop corrected me and pointed out a disused space just outside the town with proper sheds and a few in-system ships. I designated Lieutenant Orloff as my companion and waved off objections when I eschewed personal weaponry and escorts for us. A couple of pistols will not help at all in our discussions. If it comes to conflict, we will have to fight with words and concepts. The others acquiesced. Dare I hope that our negotiations below went as well? Our pinnace landed, and we were greeted by a capable young man and his beast-drawn two-wheel cart. I directed the pilot to remain with the craft. That itself created an assumption that we would return later that day. Lieutenant Orloff and I clambered aboard the transport. Our driver spoke accented Anglic, greeted us warmly, and was fascinated, perhaps titillated, to meet Imperials. His word choices and conversation conveyed Jordani concepts in imperfect translation. How was your flight? elicited my, it was fine. He hesitated and then commented, Ah, polite lies. He expected personal truth. The four-kilometer journey carried us through clean, well-maintained streets, past attractive whitewashed walls, enclosing rows and rows of single-story dwellings. There were, however, few people on the streets, until we reached the plaza. As we approached, I saw a sea of rhythmically moving humanity. Occupying nearly all of the large open central space, there were perhaps twenty rows of twenty, each person with his or her own personal space, yet all moving in some strange choreographed sequence of positions, some repeating, some new, all accompanied by the beat of a solitary unseen drum. It was a mix of ballet, synchronized swimming on land, and military close-order drill. I was transfixed. Our cart driver pointed out something I had missed. See the smaller group to the left? Seven rows of seven. Now I did. They moved in a different pattern, sometimes echoing, commenting, or presaging the larger group. There are times when the two groups move together, when the minds of each set become one and form a whole. It is then that we are touching the fabric of reality, calling forth not just things, but events from the knot-foam. I almost missed that comment. What was the knot-foam? He did not explain. It was one such synchrony that told us that your ship would arrive. Their goal is to achieve lasting synchrony in order to bring about the second true path. What could that possibly mean? 
We arrived before a small building facing the plaza to be greeted by a tall man in boots and a flowing cape. I would have identified him as a Castledan had I not known better. As we dismounted, I started a self-introduction. Hello, I am... And he interrupted. Jonathan. Yes, welcome. We are pleased to have you join us. He gestured to several figures nearby, and they scattered on different tasks. Please, step inside. I have a welcome prepared. Outside was whitewashed natural construction. Inside was stark modernity. A spacious chamber with widely spaced, comfortable furniture, gleaming floors, and indirect lighting. At one side was a self-serve banquet, to which the tall man gestured. Orloff helped himself and came back to our conversation, munching. He introduced himself as Lord Shatligiatlas, followed by a string of titles that my recorder would remember for me. He knew my true name. I realized that I had neglected to ask what my body host's name was. I knew basic facts. He was a member of their hereditary elite, trained in the powers of the mind to keep the population under control, happy and content. The entire structure of the Jordani Empire was based on a psionic elite controlling the masses. In the Imperium, psionics was fringe unorthodoxy. Here, they claimed it was an exact science. We Imperials see the Jordani Consulate as the monolithic evil empire bent on invading and enslaving all human societies. With good reason, we fear the Zhou ability to read minds, change attitudes, and oppress all who oppose them. The idea that someone could not only know my innermost private thoughts, but somehow change them to conform, was sickening. Ah, you are skeptical. We should always be skeptical of new ideas. I had seen this approach before. State the obvious as a fact and credit Psy for the conclusion. Sometimes there was indeed a talent behind the statement. Sometimes not. But this lord wanted to talk. I decided listening might get us closer to leaving the system. Permit me to acquaint you with our and your situation, perhaps to correct some of your misapprehensions. But first, I must show you the dancers. The dancers out there are our way of life. They are the purpose of our society. Come, and he led me to a window. They dance day and night. Oh, in shifts. Those now are about five hundred. Our population has thousands who live to be part of that dance. They are why you are here. Every generation produces talented scions whom we train in their talents in the service of our society. They become our healers, our trainers, our psychologists. They manage workers by sensing needs and helping to fulfill them. I know many of you Imperials fear the sciences of the mind, but that concern is misplaced. Imagine if someone in crisis could speak with a truly sympathetic counselor who could touch the mental pain and make it go away. I knew these basic facts. They made their workers happy in monotonous jobs. They erased worry rather than solving its causes. Their masses surrendered their independence in order to be happy. Their surrender was not necessarily voluntary. Or help a worker find just the right vocation that would be fulfilling and productive, and perhaps make that worker like the job and never know someone else had decided for him. The Lord continued, I agree that our two cultures are different. They naturally clash, but we share many qualities. Our populations are both predominantly human, after all. 
Whatever differences we have in our societies, our dancing is for the good of all humanity. Jimue's captain analyzed scanner displays with Sensop. They don't even have radar. Just a communicator array and some passive detectors that pick up ship arrival flashes. The captain asks, Can they see us now? Barely, and only if we are in line of sight. Not as we pass beyond the horizon as we orbit. Then let's take action. To the pilot. As soon as we are out of sight, drop to the surface. To the sensop. How long will they expect us to be orbiting? Four hours. To the pilot again. How long to refuel? An hour down and up. If we splash directly into the sea, we can refill our tanks in two hours. They will be close. Then let's make sure we do everything right. What about the lieutenants? They are our diversion. Within five minutes, Jimue started a fast descent through atmosphere. Lord Shatligiatlas continued his story. Seattle was a farming world, long ago seeded with human-compatible flora and fauna that quickly drove native species into the less desirable niches. The farms and ranches produce enough to make Seattle self-sufficient, which is a benefit because it has few visitors and little trade. Our founder was Lord Shot, my many generations ago great-grandfather, a participant in the Fifth Corps expedition almost 2,000 years ago. It reached a third of the way to the core. Imagine, they saw the core-deep chasm on Genopiat, the broken ring, the 400 parsec expanse of the barren worlds. He touched the steel of triumph itself. Even spending significant periods in cold sleep, it took them a quarter of a lifetime there and a quarter of a lifetime to return. The journey was an epic adventure, and my ancestor flew on one of the flanks, a parallel course gathering information on worlds and sofonts. He encountered the native intelligent life of a minor backward planet, Seattle. This world is named for that. They were a naturally lithe and agile people with a philosophy of oneness with the universe expressed through rhythmic movement. Enhanced by their natural psionic ability, they strove through mass-coordinated festivals to shape the seasons and encourage the crops. They indeed did shape reality through their dances, and he did what he could to capture their secrets. Lord Schott saw the essential usefulness of their dances, connecting his own background of science and psi, now seen through the lens of Seattleian eyes, he imagined how to use it for the betterment of society. Our system finds children, babies, with psionic potential and elevates them to the intendant class. Separate training, not only in psionics, but social behavior, business, government, management, and problem-solving. These specially selected people receive the best in education and training because they are destined to become the leaders of Zhou government and society. But all of these elements of nurture cannot overcome nature. What happens to the truly unblessed, the unintelligent, the intellectually unfavored, the stupid? Our traditional response has been to move them into non-crucial positions. They become managers of animal populations, fish habitats, the forests, the records of weather and climate, endeavors that could be handled by underlings, efforts that need to be done but are truly non-crucial. Regrettably, such positions are usually unfulfilling. 
The organizations themselves can survive. Many of them even thrive. But we are also concerned with the welfare of every one of our members. These exceptions, these truly unfortunates, would have been better off if they had not been selected. But even the Jordani cannot turn back time. You might call our settlement here a group home or sheltered care. They come here and we provide them purpose, meaning, goals in life. The dance is not about agility or grace or even synchronization, but about native psionic talent. That they are able to provide. I spoke up. I don't really understand. What does the dance do? It shapes reality. Doesn't reality already have a shape? I apologize. I spoke a traditional phrase. I will more carefully craft my words. Strong sigh, used in concert, can bring about changes in reality. It can change location without energy. It can reach across distance. It can set events in motion. It can stop trends. It can create. It can destroy. When the dancers are truly in tune with each other, they call into existence events and sequences that direct reality to the best of all possible universes. Our phrase for the process is called shaping reality. We don't know what that shape looks like before it happens, but sometimes it is so clear that we can recognize it. Your arrival, for example. They thought our chance misjump was a positive event. Much better than taking our arrival as a threat. Yes, he agreed. Did I say that aloud? No. Ah, how do I control or conceal my very thoughts? You cannot. But there is no need. Communication is enhanced. Jimawe filled its tanks with water, processing it in clouds of steam and mist into the hydrogen that would fuel its power plant and jump drive. Every crew person had some task at some console or device to ensure the process took no longer than necessary. At last the tanks were full and the ship ready. The captain gave an order to leap into the sky, and nothing. Spacers began immediate actions, automatic responses, checking, diagnosing, analyzing. Every single routine and inspection gave the same response, ready, but the ship did not move. Lord Shotley Giatlas frowned. Your captain has taken steps without you. I see that you are unaware. This is so typical of you Imperials. As if I would not know. No matter. The Shanches, the word means seconds, are shown the benefits of belonging to the second true way. Sometimes they are encouraged by trained counselors. A few fall away, but most see the benefits and look forward to a fulfilling life. Shanches are fitted with wafer jacks. The interfaces are different from your imperial standards, but the concept is the same. The Shanches receive skill sets, very high-level and special skill sets, that overcome lack of intelligence. For the most part, the skills have little correlation with intelligence anyway. They encompass dance, music, rhythmic movement, cooperation. The Shanches become dancers. Coupled with their psionic abilities, they become very good dancers, very good synchronized dancers. They become key to the Shantiyatl path. He moved us to the window again. The dancers are hypnotic, are they not? The array of twenty rows of twenty dancers fills the plaza. The unseen drum sounds its ever-present beat. The dancers are not just synchronized. 
waves of motion and gesture sweep across the surface, punctuated by eddies and whirls, soothing undulations punctuated by abrupt and compelling statements. There is a parallel effect in the psionic emanations from this assembly as they radiate outward in waves and pulses. This psionic consciousness has its own influence in the quantum nature of the universe, on the knot foam from which everything arises. When the pulses truly synchronize, they compel changes in the fabric of reality itself. Properly done, they propel the current world line towards its optimal expression, Sion Stlatl, the second path, the better way. Elsewhere in the consulate are the abbeys that try to divine the future, the Quixotlatl path. Some of their scions can see the future. Different people see different aspects, but they agree in general. The wave, the great break, the black fleets. They only look. We are doing something. Our dancers bend reality to change those predicted futures, to divert the wave, to avoid the chaos of the break, to repel the black fleets. The dancers brought you here. When you arrived, it was clear that you are part of the second path. I invite you to participate. I understand your implanted personality process. With an adapter, you can share it with me. My personality will not be suppressed. They will merge. We are aligned, you and I. We both want the same. Progress. Safety. The dance brought you here. There is a purpose for you. We just need to take the next step. He was mad. Insane. I tried to suppress the thought. He could sense my aversion, but now I was paralyzed. My muscles tried to squirm or fail, but they stood immobile. I had let my guard down, fascinated by his story, not seeing where it was leading. Lieutenant Orloff stood equally still. If he could move, I was sure he would have. Lord Shotligiatlas approached without malice. His touch was almost loving as he removed my wafer fitted it to a small packet, and applied it to the place at the back of his skull. I understood. In a flash of invisible light, in a clash of inaudible sound, I understood everything that Shatligiatlas had been telling us. More than that, I believed everything that he said. It all made sense. It was all supported not by wishes and aspirations, but by scientific proof, careful hypothesizing, rigorous testing. I knew that the dancers could bend reality, that they had done so in the past. Some pattern of dancing years before had set up a cascade of events that made our ship misjump here so that I could see the very truth of their mission and believe in their sacred cause. Now I saw that I could intervene in the affairs of the Empire, draw them closer to the consulate, reduce our conflicts, bring the benefits of the Zhou psychology to our own populations. A voice in the back of my head, his voice sharing my mind, spoke to me, telling me what I needed to do, assuring me of the long-term benefits, defining my actions as service to the Empire, and more, as service to all mankind. I had never been so completely sure of myself as at that very moment. And yet, even as he spoke, his voice faltered. Just as I was listening to him, feeling his belief in his way of life and his conviction that the second true path was absolute truth, he was listening to me, hearing not only my belief in service to the Empire, but also my memories, 
They washed over him, not just memories of killing millions and billions of people, human or not, but also my commonplace ability to dissemble and misdirect. He was strong, but he was not trained in the details of the psychology in which he felt such confidence. He expected that he would dominate in our shared mind. He underestimated the situation. I knew that he had stalled Jim away, that he was immobile on the other side of the world. I knew how he had done it, and I, with a simple decision, reversed his action. Sir, we have power. What was the problem? Never mind lift in three, two, one. Yes, we have lift. The ship rose slowly from the shallow sea to about a hull height, and then accelerated straight up. I stood and planned what I needed to do. I reached out to our pinnace, and instantly the pilot knew, without understanding, that he needed to board his two passengers in the plaza. It would be a matter of mere minutes. I also thought that the dancers should clear the plaza to avoid injuries. Through the window, I even then could see them flowing to its edges. Lord Shatley-Giatlas had assumed a figurative fetal position in the back of our head, and I turned my attention to him. His plan had been that I spearhead an effort to bring the Jodani psionic sciences to the Imperium, and with it their euphemistic adjustments of minds to accept their stations and lots in life. For all his sophistication, this lord had no true grasp of imperial dissimulation. He would have his body back in a month, and I began a series of mental conversations before he regained full control. Now I, the Lord, addressed me, the agent, as only self can to self, in brief phrases and staccato, half-expressed ideas, confident that I would understand me. Leave these people alone. They are not a threat to the Empire, at least not now. The pinnace hit the plaza hard, and its hatch irised open. In a matter of seconds, the pilot appeared as we approached. Reveal nothing, I whispered to myself. I touched Lieutenant Orloff, and he collapsed. His memory of this would be blank. Agent Me and Pilot hauled him into the craft. In the last minute I pulled away the wafer from my niche and returned it to my agent host, and they were gone. Anna Plant Lagash Report 4 Video image of an older human woman with dark hair and a spacer cut and streaked with gray. Her eyes have slight wrinkles at the edges that shift as she smiles. She speaks with authority. Date stamp 092-541. Report 4. Our time on the ship settled into a routine. We all had responsibilities, but none were onerous. There was a flurry of activity just before and just after a jump transition, and there were tasks to be performed as we scanned new systems and refueled. But our time during jump had few demands on us. We exercised. I studied. Our book club met and discussed. I stood a watch on the bridge twice. The techs similarly shared a rotation in the drive compartment. I formed a habit of reading alone. Early on, Flink had given me a day-long tour of the ship, from Astronic's compartment in the very prow to the stern chasers fixed between the drive outputs. Off the drive compartment, into each wing, were horizontal maintenance shafts that directly accessed sensors and servos and led to wingtip weapons turrets. Within each was a single acceleration couch with aimers and triggers and an observation dome. 
I could sit there for hours, reading the classics, comparing texts, making notes, turning over in my mind the many roles there were in society. Anglic literature was no longer my vocation, but it remained to me interesting, even compelling. After Jonathan showed me jump space, I made a habit of de-opaquing the dome, and the chaotic royal of jump space strangely became a soothing background to my thoughts. In this particular instance, I was rereading Nert's script on hope when I noticed a change in the chaos around me. Where normally I would see a cascade of intense points of many-colored lights, they were now transitioning to one color. Some, then many, then most, and finally all the points became intense blue. I noted the time and tapped text into the comm asking Jonathan to join me, adding a word to denote urgency. Within five minutes he was stepping half through the hatch while asking why and what. I shushed him although technically I was not supposed to shush the captain, and I said I would explain other things later. But now look out there. I closed my eyes so he would have an untarnished view. This started about ten minutes ago. Before, it was ordinary. Now everything is blue. What is it? Can I open my eyes now? He said I could, and the intensity faded by about half. We decided to take turns looking, and we each tried to memorize what we saw, narrating our notes to the recorder. Eventually, the points returned to their normal, multicolored appearance. I noted the time. About ninety minutes elapsed. My newfound familiarity with math kicked in as I made some quick calculations aloud. Our course line is three parsecs, called at ten light years, or one hundred twenty light months. Our jump should be 168 hours, more or less. That effect, phenomenon, change, was 90 minutes long or a hundredth of our jump, or about a month long. Jonathan was tapping a pad. 32 days, but jump doesn't work that way. There is no direct correlation between time and jump and location. I knew that. I had been taught that. Then again, we just saw it, a direct correlation. There is that. He touched parts of the screen to preserve our narrations, whatever information the scanners and imagers had preserved, and I saw him triple-tap a space labeled ultimate. In our entire interaction, neither of us had spoken the word wave. Then I had to explain to him why I was spending my time in the port wing turret. Death Suits 056-560, aboard B. Imamala, orbiting Vland Sector 1703, Death Suits, C310200-8, low population. I awoke to the gentle hum of bridge noises, low voices, gentle processing sounds, the occasional audible alert. To my question about Senior, the response acknowledged me. Next senior was Captain LaBelle, and my briefer was Commander Sathpaba. If activations to determine the fates of worlds can be considered normal, then this particular activation was still unusual for several reasons that Commander Sathpaba noted. We were aboard a single, aging, semi-dreadnought, the Amamala, patrolling beyond the Imperial border in Varger space, above a world with no atmosphere 
and almost no people. Against this background, minute briefer spelled out the problem. Our routine anti-Corsair patrol took us to this system, and our sensors picked up an extensive activity on the polar plane. Initially, this was identified as a pirate base. No matter that they would be better off burrowing in an asteroid in the belt, but the readings and scans show something much too big for that. The primary transpects viewport opaque and images appeared. The first showed a city, a center with concentric rings and extending rays, overlaid with a smaller gridwork of connectors. Some of these rays extended far beyond the city to smaller clusters. Tathpaba highlighted one. This cluster is an open-pit mine exploiting meteoric Feni. Note the smelter and processing complexes. He highlighted another location. And this cluster is processing native copper. A third. And this, much farther away, is extracting radioactives. Finally, he highlighted and enlarged the very center of the city. They are building a ship. I could see it was a very large ship, roughly cylindrical, its base visible surrounded by gantries and frames. The diameter of the base is about 350 meters. The ogive of the hull so far says it will be 700 meters long, bullet-shaped, two million tons, ten times the size of our ship, four times the largest ship the Empire builds. See the cluster of gantry frames? They're makering the hull and interior structures in a single pass. No one builds ships like that. I'm used, except them. How many people in that city? None. They are robots. From what we can tell, this city started four years ago. There's a small outpost on the other side of the world mining some rare earths, about a hundred humans in Varger. They noticed something, and when they tried to visit, they were first ignored and later actively kept away. The locals have shared with us their surveillance imagery. Tell me your evaluation. I already knew the probable concept. Self-replicating automatons who land, build more of themselves, and send those off to do the same again. Meanwhile, the robots left behind would eventually consume this world, building more of themselves. The Empire's secret archives had records of now-dead worlds with surfaces converted to vast robot cities. Who knew where their robot citizens ultimately went? Yes, Agent. Their first priority seems to be completing their big ship. They don't seem to have jump drive or gravity-based maneuver. That thing appears to use an Orion drive. Which was craziness. The ship would ride on successive fission or fusion explosions. It would destroy the city as it lifted off. What machine logic was at work here? So this city is not long-term viable? It will be destroyed when the ship lifts off? Most probably. Maybe the robots don't care about radiation. Where is the ship going? Orion means sublight, probably a tenth light speed, perhaps thirty or forty years per parsec. Theoretically, if they knew where to go, they could reach land in about five hundred years. Where did they come from? They could have been cruising for millennia before they got here. We don't have enough information. Did they run low on supplies or fuel? Was there something special about this world? We just don't know. The robots seemed oblivious to us hanging in orbit. On the other hand, they were not unintelligent. What if they discovered we had jump drive? What if they could reprogram their maker shipyard to build effective faster-than-light drives? My decision was easy. Scrub them. 
Captain, I operate under Imperial Edict 97. Make a preemptive strike as soon as possible. When can that be? Heretofore silent, Captain LaBelle now spoke. I agree. First strikes can be in as soon as an hour. I want a person in ship census for the system. A clerk spoke up. There's us. The mining outpost has perhaps a hundred people. Three ships on the ground there. Trader Legend out of Regina with a crew of four. Four carrier Char 73 with a universal megacorp number. And Far Trader Zynid registered locally. All are on the surface at the outpost currently. Put an assault team in the outpost. I want everyone aboard those ships and in orbit before the strike begins. How long will that take? A marine lieutenant spoke up. Two hours to prepare and hit the surface. Six hours for a sweep. Two hours to get out. Ten hours. Make it happen. Then to the ship captain. Make sure they are away before you start. Almost all of the ship's marines participated. A squad remained behind to handle any issues and to provide me security, although I did not expect any need. As I waited, after I had seen the assault lander off, I engaged the squad leader in conversation. Where are you from? How long have you been in? What precisely are you? This particular squad was composed of six threep, a trifold sofant with three legs, three arms with three-fingered hands, a head with three faces. They were considerably more agile than they looked. The Navy lets us enlist as a pod, he said in a loud voice. We stay together through training and assignments. I thought that perhaps they had been left behind for some reason of prudence or comparative inefficiency. Instead, it came out that their assignment was a simple rotation of responsibilities. This particular squad leader, Dorn, took pride in his unit and in their performance. If I had pressed a question of inefficiency, he would have been insulted. In idle talk, I spoke of how fortunate we all were that we had found this particular threat before it matured, that if these robots were loosed on the Empire, they could devastate whole worlds and vast populations. Sergeant Dorn and his corporal nodded in agreement and understanding. Marines have their own Rule 1. They are trained to be very efficient, and yet they can be sympathetic. They allowed each of the evacuees to take whatever he or she could carry and gave them minutes to pack. The entire operation took slightly less time than scheduled. While the ore carrier hung in orbit near us, the two traders docked in our hangar bay. The larger red one discharged about half the evacuees and a handful of marines down a ramp. The smaller white one gave us the rest, and their own contingent of troops out a large oval hatch. I addressed the sixty or so locals. They were variously stunned, angered, dazed, and argumentative. Dorn activated a klaxon that focused their attention and silenced them. I began with Rule 1. There is no appeal from these events. You are fortunate that you have been evacuated before the world below is scrubbed and that you have escaped with your lives. Interrogators will interview each of you to harvest what information we can about the settlement on the far side of the planet. Be patient until you are called. I waved an instruction and Marines started culling the first to be questioned. As I watched, Dorn grabbed my elbow and turned me away from the crowd. In itself, this was a violent violation of protocol. Before I could respond, he held a three-fingered hand in front of my face, shielded from view by anyone else. In silent Marine battle language, 
he spelled out in quick succession. Identifiers for three of the evacuees by position, a marker of each as enemy, and a strange notation that they were not human, not Sofont. I understood immediately and held out my own hand with the two-digit signal. Kill them. Doran must have been simultaneously signaling with his other hands, because shots sounded even as he pulled me down to the deck. In slow motion I took in the next ten seconds. Two figures dashed toward the red ship's ramp, grabbing others as they passed, dropping them as they twitched with shot impacts, then seizing more as shields. A fallen third rose, half of his shoulder missing, to attempt the same process. One fell, rose, then fell again with her leg missing. Even as he fell, shots rang from his hand. Not from a pistol, from his hand. Bodies dropped and red splattered. I noticed a man on the periphery holding a strange tiger-striped woman as shield, backing toward the shelter of a wall, and then a marine covered me with his body. Shots staccatoed to the accompaniment of screams and cries. Although the shooting stopped, the action didn't. The evacuees scattered to the perimeter of the chamber. There was nothing for me to do. The marines followed standard combat protocols. At the edge of my perception, I noted that the access ports had slammed shut also a standard protocol. I hoped that those on the other side realized that depressurization would not help us against robots. At last it was over. Three Marines grabbed me and literally carried me out of the chamber and up a flight of stairs to the flight control overlook. Once there, the Marine leader, on his own initiative, forced everyone against the transpects at gunpoint. I watched his fingers twitch in battle language. The Marine to his right withdrew a short blade from his boot, held out his arm, and cut it enough to bleed. Without a word, he grabbed the arm of each of the three techs and cut them. The Marine's next. I offered my own arm, and he cut it as well. Clear, Agent. May we return to the deck? Good work, yes. One of the techs collapsed to the deck, and I ignored him. To the others, get me the captain. I want total lockdown. The hangar deck below was an abattoir. I mentally estimated twenty bodies, some moving, some not, their clothing stained bright red. Along the perimeters were huddled clumps of three or five or seven, crouching to look smaller, hiding behind anything they could find. Teams of marines moved among them, brutally throwing evacuees toward the center of the deck. With each was one of the tripods, passing judgment. A lieutenant, accompanied by Dorn, brought me a report. Agent, there were fifty-nine evacuees in the bundle, thirty-five Marines, plus your six Marines, three interrogators, and you. The Counts reconcile. Dorn's troops cut down the robots as they ran for the traitor's boarding ramp, and we have all three. There was collateral damage, which I regret was unavoidable. I told him I concurred, to which he was visibly relieved. Rule 2 and Rule 4. I turned to Dorn. What happened? Agent We, and I knew he meant he and his fellow tripods, have a perception of living things, as if they are humming or singing. But it's not really sound. It's hard to explain. I recognized his description of the non-human perception sense. Some thought it a kind of psionics, although it was not. Those three were silent. The lieutenant interrupted. There's a very lifelike polymer overlay with an internal framework. But they are robots. They don't bleed. And now they don't move. 
make a complete report. You have done well. The Emperor appreciates your service. My statement was not perfunctory. They had done well. Their response may well have saved dozens of worlds and millions of lives. How does one tally such a victory? Dorn, also make a complete report. You have also done well. The lieutenant asked to be excused, saluted, and left. Dorn went with him. A naval officer found me and escorted me to the bridge. The captain was irate at this violation of his ship. He was pleased to begin the scrubbing. I left him to his work. He knew what to do. The ore carrier belonged to one of the mega corporations. Marines searched the ship, accompanied by tripods, and declared it clear. I spoke with its captain and sent it on its way. I spoke with Legend's captain. He, accompanied by the strange striped-tattooed woman who stood deferentially behind him and spoke not at all. We negotiated passage for ten of the evacuees. He would carry them to a world of relative safety, their fares paid with imperial vouchers. That left the white ship Zynied. Its crew was dead. Some robots, some humans. It appeared we had frustrated some robot plan by sheer chance. I had a clerk show me the records of the evacuees. Ten humans and three Varga, including some with enough experience to operate the drives, but no pilot or astrogator. A quick check told me the best candidate was Legend's strange woman with a strange name that told me more. Florine Ten, a clone by the name, and now I understood the tattoos, status identifiers applied by her creator. Why was I even concerned with all of this? No matter. I had started a process. I would finish. I told Legend's captain I needed his astrogator for Zynid. He objected. She was his property. He could not let her go without compensation. I dismissed him even as he ranted. I next interviewed the woman. She spoke only in response to direct questions, avoided my eyes in deference. She was indeed property, technically not a slave, but certainly not free. And yet, the record showed her factory options skill set made her a capable astrogator and a tolerable pilot. I suppose her owner saved money using her instead of paid crew. I dismissed everyone else from the room, told her to sit, and waited her out, not speaking, not looking at her. At last she spoke. What will happen to me? I have decided to emancipate you. She remained silent. I need a captain for Zynid, that white ship out there. I have selected you. I cannot. I owe a debt to legend. I made her tell me everything. That her clone batch owed a joint debt to the factory that created her and her sisters. If she defaulted, her sibs would bear its burden. Currently her share was paid by legend. I told her the debt was transferred to me. I checked records and made notations. I gave her Zyni to salvage. I gave her passengers to carry away and vouchers to pay their passages. I told her to find and recruit her sisters as crew and to pay their debts with salaries and cargo fees. She sat incredulous. Why? Call it a whim. Perhaps I am paying forward for gifts I have received. After a pause, there is something else. Now she looked suspicious. I ignored it. Everything of value has a price. I will tell you a secret name. Share it with your sisters and their daughters. Someday this debt may come due. I believe I understand. 
I hope I understand. And the secret name is? Jonathan Bland. Is that you? In a way. There is no need to worry. I do not expect that this debt will be a burden. I gave her some single-use override codes keyed to specific dates. One would register her as emancipated. Another would make a payment on her personal debt. Yet another would allow her to register Zynied in her name. As the three ships left the system, Captain LaBelle began scrubbing Dasuits, and I began a coded report for the archives. Arbalatra 103-621 Aboard BKF Korakak Above Vland Sector 1717 Vland A967A99-C High Population World Sector Capital I was surrounded by a pleasant scent. Incense, perhaps? And by utter quiet. Jonathan, welcome. Please, be seated and join us for dinner. I opened my eyes to the wardroom of a large warship, with a large conference table to one side, but before me a small table set with fine plates and utensils. The speaker, a large-boned and attractive woman in naval uniform, gestured to a chair, and I sat down. Her rank stripes said Admiral with some embellishments. My mind tried to process several thoughts at once. I couldn't quite place the rank markings. This was not the usual setting for my activation. And she addressed me with my true name. I am Admiral Alcalakoy. You are aboard my flagship, leading the squadrons of the Second Expeditionary Fleet. And I need your advice. At some signal, a steward filled the wine glasses and delivered a light first course. Are you aware of the turmoil of the last thirty years? I was not, and said as much. Tell me the situation, over dinner. I don't need extreme detail, but include everything you think important. She unleashed a torrent of complaint. The spinward marchers are the stepchild of the Imperium. We're young. Not the established, old, blind, well-settled worlds. Nevertheless, we're an economic powerhouse. Bigger than Fornast sector, right next to Capital. Bigger than Diaspora. We beat off the Joes, an empire ten times our size. Twice. While the Emperor ignored us. Twice. So we are also the first line of defense for the Empire. Our Grand Admiral Hulp Plankwell. He turned back the Joes. Carried our complaints to capital. He was forced to seize power in the face of Jacqueline's intransigency. But the Admiral was a frontier fighter, not a politician. His direct ways alienated the administrative admirals in their comfortable offices, and even then he lasted almost three years. But they bided their time, lied, schemed, and finally pounced. Their treason is what created the chaos that is our current government. Those squabbling armchair bureaucrats, each wanting to be emperor, were too busy to even notice when the Joes and the dogs attacked the marches again. Did you know that they pushed a strike squadron almost of land? Here, where we are now, halfway to capital? But no, you wouldn't. Of course not. We thought Cleon V would be the answer. He stopped the squabbling. He sent us reinforcements, squadrons. Then, just when everything started to turn around, the bureaucrats manipulated everything again. Eleven so-called emperors in five years. I'm not even sure who sits on the throne at the moment. Sometimes I wonder how the empire has survived at all. But enough of background. We have beat back the Joes, but who knows for how long. My mission is to straighten out the Navy 
and ensure the security of the marches. Someone has to listen to reason in capital. So here we are at Vland, the home world of humanity. On the way here, we have met other Imperial squadrons, defeated some, rallied others to our cause, and we will continue to capital. But here, we are stalemate. The fleet here is our equal. They won't attack, but they won't concede. We need their hulls, their squadrons, their strength added to ours. With every negotiation, their structure shifts, and we go back to introductions. I activated you for your strategic input. How do I defeat this troublesome fleet? Admiral, I think there is an answer, but call me Bella. It's more comfortable. By the way, you are Rice. She pronounced it with a Y. Bella? Bella, usually I stand before dozens or hundreds of crew and give orders. It is certainly nicer to have a dinner conversation. You activated my wafer because... I am at a loss, and success is so important. I need to defeat this fleet, and you're an expert admiral. Ah, I see now. Usually the computer prompts the activation of a wafer. Some raiding goes to fetch it, some volunteer inserts it, and, she added, there's an expert standing on the bridge who knows what to do. Yes, exactly right. In this case, it isn't the agency activating me. It's you. Technically, I have no authority. You just want advice. Precisely. Let me explain further. There are five kinds of wafer, each with its own attributes and benefits. Negotiator, advisor, warlord, admiral, and decider. Negotiator is worthless. A wafer personality lasts less than a month. Any worthy adversary just outweighs him. Advisor is equally worthless. They should have labeled the wafer sycophant. Warlord and admiral are two sides of the same coin. They are both brilliant strategists and clever tacticians, and they know how to win. Actually, the personalities they harvested to make the warlord and the admiral were service academy game players. Each had years of experience wargaming out thousands of situations and writing papers about them. The admiral wafer could win this battle for you, but probably at the cost of half your fleet. You should be glad your raiding made a mistake and fetched the wrong wafer. I'm not an admiral. I'm a decider. She choked as she sipped wine. She could not respond immediately, and that allowed me to continue. I held up my hand and said, But that is fortuitous. I know how to win. You are gathering forces along your march on capital. You need this opposing fleet as part of your strength. As long as they stall, you are stuck here. Exactly. Tell me the secret of their defeat. How to rally even half of them to my cause. I'm a decider. I was, a long time ago, a functionary in the bureaucracy that managed the quarantine agency. I made decisions all day long. The agency tested more than a million people for aptitude, intelligence, ability. They selected me because I knew what I was doing, and I was usually successful. I have a single principle, and I know how to implement it. I was implementing Rule 1. Rule 3. Identify one or more solutions that will work. Then pick one. It doesn't matter which one. Just pick one. In this case, we can already see the solution. There is only one. We pick it. So when do we attack? And how? Tell me what to do. I told her. She said, let's do it. We would start tomorrow. She moved to the couch and gestured me to join her. Sitting next to her, I sensed that there was something else. 
This was the closest I had been to another human being in centuries, and it felt good and strange and forbidden all at the same time. I enjoyed it at this casual level as we talked about history and politics and society. Then I remembered, Do you know your guns won't work in core sector? That changed the dynamic. What? The operating systems are astrofenced. Ships outside the core fleet are locked down within the sector. They don't trust us? Should they? I suppose not. No matter. I have the override codes. It just takes some calculations and some keystrokes, if I can remember them. She startled, recovered, and slapped my shoulder playfully. I learned later, much later, that she and Rice App Connor had been together for the last nine years. It was a shame, I thought, that she married Duke Sergei instead. 104-621, aboard BKF Korakak, above Vland Sector 1717, Vland, A967-A99-C, high population, sector capital. I made a presentation. Four stripes on a graphic, each filling in a quarter of the image as I detailed the important elements. Stripe 1, by right of assassination. The Empire is a web of oaths with rights and responsibilities, all leading upward to the Emperor, downward to the people. There is very little in the way of constitutional documentation. Over time, over the centuries, accepted rights arise from custom, circumstance, and precedent. Emperor Martin II died in 244 without issue. Tracing up and over the genealogies, the candidate with the greatest claim was Cleon III, great to the third grandson of Cleon II. Everyone agreed that precedent gave him the claim, and he was duly installed on the Iridium throne. Within months, everyone agreed that it was a mistake. He banished his minister for health to the rim, based on a conflict in schedules. His bodyguard shot the Grand Counselor dead after a disagreement on protocol for an investiture. He arrested nobles who voted against his proposals in committee. He shot the Duke of Alelish for reasons that we still debate. You all know the story. His private council agreed Cleon the Mad had to go, and they selected Porphyria, by lot, to tell him. She did, at the cost of a wound to the leg, but shot him dead herself. The moot acclaimed her empress the next day. That established selection by right of assassination, by a high noble, by his or her own hand in the presence of witnesses, with the approval of the moot. For two hundred years, the right was an obscure footnote. In 475, Cleon IV resurrected it when he assassinated Nicole. Jerome assassinated Cleon. Jacqueline assassinated Jerome. Ultimately, Olav, your mentor, killed Jacqueline. You see the pattern. Ten emperors in the first 450 years. Most successions were peaceful. Twenty emperors in the 150 years since, most ascending by killing their predecessors. This whole non-dynasty is being called the Emperors of the Flag. You qualify. You are a flag officer. You're eligible. You just have to kill Ivan, by your own hand, in front of witnesses, in a fair enough fight that the moot approves afterward. Next image. The second stripe started to fill in as I spoke. Stripe 2. Fleet action. The Navy controls everything. The last 15 emperors, at least since Olav, have been admirals and controlled the fleet. You can have a force twice the size, probably, of the emperor's central fleet. 
I'll bet that only a few Commodores know that out-of-sector ships are astrofenced. How about the Emperor is confident of his advantage, which is illusory. We have their advantage. Next image. Stripe 3. Forced Moves. We are sixty parsecs and almost a year away from capital. How do we plan an attack from this distance in both time and space? Where will he be? Will Ivan even be emperor when we get there? Endgames in chess, or otherwise, are based on forced moves. Who knows chess? Let me build a foundation for you. Everything to this point has been development. Marshalling forces, building positions, creating a situation we can win. We are now on the cusp of the endgame. With the right moves, we can force events and actions that inevitably lead to a win. There are things that we know will happen. There are events we can make happen. There will be a holiday celebration as the year turns to 622. The Emperor will participate. To hide in some fortress or not receive his nobles would be a mark of fear, even cowardice. We know the bureaucracy will continue to function. We know that the Duchess of Rylanor will be invited. There's more, but we'll deal with that later. Next image. Stripe 4. Break the Cycle. Every one of the admirals in this conflict thinks he or she or it can govern better than the others. You, I am sure, think the same. You need to give that up. You need to put the good of the Empire first. You must forswear the Iridium throne. We must break this cycle of assassination and fleet battles, or the Empire will tear itself apart. The four stripes were now colored in. Comments? A captain spoke first. The lady would make the best empress in a hundred years. A commander offered, or ever. There was a murmur of agreement. And countered. And who will stop the next admiral from thinking he is better? How do you convince the entire command structure of the Navy or a majority of the moot, or the general population, that the cycle of assassination and succession has stopped. I would like to propose, that focused their attention, and I waited until there was silence, that the Lady Arbolatra graciously consent to be regent, not empress, regent, to hold the ultimate powers of state and trust until a suitable surviving heir is located. The cycle will be broken. Peace will return to the Empire. Assassination of the Regent certainly does not convey the Regency. There is no precedent. I wondered privately, was this ever even conceived as part of my mission to serve the Empire? Arbolatra's staff and officers discussed, argued, dissented, agreed, disagreed, agreed to disagree, and ultimately concluded a recommendation for this course of action. It fell to Arbolatra herself to ratify the plan. She did, and everyone turned to finalizing it. The orders were hand-carried on paper by couriers in the ordinary course of business over the next twelve hours. They gave an introduction, a series of preliminary instructions, eleven numbered paragraphs, and a concluding statement. The couriers also personally and privately entered the gunnery override codes and an extensive set of contingency battle instructions. The next day, as the negotiators returned from another fruitless meeting, Arbolatra's flagship sent its coded signal at 1500. Paragraph 11. Confirm. Paragraph 11. Jump precisely two hours after receipt of orders 
to any system of your choice and rally in capital to arrive at precisely 2359-365-621 prepared for battle. Our ship, the flagship of the fleet, waited until the last possible moment. Bella wanted to be sure of as much as possible. Keeping the jump drive capacitors charged for that long carries with it a risk of catastrophe, but the Admiral needed to know her ships were safely on their way. We needed to cover 60 parsecs in 37 weeks. At our best performance, we could be there in 17 weeks, plus or minus a few days. Others in our fleet were not as speedy. The slowest would take nearly the entire time to get there. 105-621, aboard BKF Korakak, above Land Sector 1717, Bland, A967-A99-C, High Population World, Sector Capital. I stripped Arbolatra's command structure of specific officers and Marines selected for their talents, their aptitudes, their genders, and their wafer jacks. I had my own part to play in this grand scheme to save the Empire. I started at precisely 1700. My ship already knew the plan and was ready. It was the one of the first to jump away. I was aboard in wafer form. On the other hand, I, as Agent Ap Connor, remained with the Grand Admiral on her flagship. The fastest ship in the second expeditionary fleet was a Kanu-class anti-commerce raider, Chigig. The names don't translate easily into Anglic. Kanu is a mythic hero capable of many identities. Chigig is one of the identities, a shrub with many poison thorns. There is more in the original Volani story cycle. Details of magic tinged with specific virtues. Fatal flaws inherent in each type of magic. Shigik could reach capital in just under 14 weeks, say 200 or so. Shigig arrived at the edge of the capital identification zone and disembarked several of our people. They jumped to a different entry point and disembarked several more. They each proceeded individually to capital by jump liner. Shigig then drove for Ace, another neighbor of capital. Along the way it became Medugar, one of Shigig's sisters, which I knew by records was assigned to the edge of the Great Rift, and specifically not associated with the Spinward Marches. My override codes ensured that we were recognized correctly. Upon arrival it dropped off several more officers, and they made their way at intervals to capital as well. Finally, Medugar became Ducini and drove for Ermin Belt. There, it laid over for the weeks of delay that needed to pass before the next stage of the plan was to unfold. 200-621, aboard BK Lioness, above Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. Although Holiday's Eve celebrations are universal, time zones make them non-simultaneous. For the Empire as a whole, for the nobility, for capital, and for the Emperor, the only important time is midnight on the clocks of the Imperial Palace. The Prime Meridian slices through the palace grounds. Lioness, in stationary orbit above, keeps the same time. Forced move 1. 212-621, Core Sector 2114, Chudasham, C849A55-A, High Population World, Industrial World. 
Commander Aryan Landaxa kept his real name. His family had distant roots in the Silean Federation, which was now capital, and his orders reflected an assignment early next year to a protocol post at the Moot. Meanwhile, his temporary assignment would be with the protocol scheduling office. His refrain to those who would listen was, I hope I can get to see our ancestral communities while I am here. He spent the night in a luxurious suite at the Traveler's Aid Society Hotel and negotiated passage on a fast destroyer bound for capital the next day. Forced move 2. 215-621, Core Sector 2115, Knabib, A431758-9, Non-Agricultural World, Poor World. Captain Sir Jalil Patel was disembarked at Knabib Highport and made his way quickly to the Associated Naval Base. His orders identified him as Lieutenant Commander Jalil Shugili, the first name for ease of memory, the last name to muddy the trail. His orders chip said he had been dispatched from Daibei Sector, assigned to a year of shadowing duty on capital by his patron, Count Someone or Other. No one really cared. This happened all the time. The control codes and encryption passed the simple computer processes. Besides, if this was a scam, the audits would ultimately catch it. Lieutenant Commander was quite a demotion, more so because now Shugili looked like he was old enough to be a captain, and this mismatch had the appearance that he was less than competent. He embraced the role as a game. At the naval base, he presented a voucher for passage to capital and was there just seven days later. Forced move three. 325-621, aboard BK Lioness above Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. Force Commander Arlen West, SEH, and recently arrived from the Spinwood Marches, enjoyed the change of command ceremony and regretted that his predecessor was unable to attend. The 4th Battalion of the 61st Imperial Star Marine Regiment was the traditional ship's troop for Lioness and regularly rotated to duty at the Imperial Palace. With the palace in ruins and the festivities planned for Lioness on Holiday's Eve, the coming assignment would be a hard work but also undoubtedly produce glowing fitness reports and ultimately career enhancements. He returned to the salute of the officer of the day and started to work. Forced move four. Return to Deus. 345-620, aboard ISS Atalanta, above Zerushagar Sector 0917, Deus 2. E-87400-0, Barren World, Dangerous World, Imperial Reserve. The deck had an irregular vibration beneath my feet. I wondered briefly if something was awry, but then I went on. Who here is senior? You are, sir. Who is next senior? Someone gave a name. Algerson or Algenson. It wasn't clear. Who is the briefer? I suppose I am, sir. Benalla. I immediately noticed that no ranks were given. Strange. I opened my eyes to a bridge with a row of consoles facing large deck-to-deck transpec ports looking out on a murky red-brown planet. Four crew, officers, stood in a clump near a console. Benalla, tell me what is going on. Frankly, we don't know. 
We're on routine survey. We entered this system. The klaxon went off. The screen said activate a quarantine agent. You. The threat level is at most four. Danger up here is nothing. This was not right. Who are these people? What ship is this? He smiled. This is the Atalanta, a beagle out of Nathan. Some clarity now. Ah, scouts. And this world? Deus. Scrubbed a hundred years ago. The sensors show no sign of life or of the parasites. Sticky's astrofence worked. On a survey ship, no less. The synchronization even jumped the divide between Navy and Scout. Let's look at the sensors. I hoped I could find evidence to support what I needed to do. We found a world as I had left it. Herbs burned to glass. Vast stretches of empty terrain punctuated by clouds of radioactives. Skies darkened by cascades of dust. A million years from now, someone would find fossilized sofons encased in bedrock. I wonder why these people died or were killed. Benalla, on my instructions monitoring the deep radar, found a trace of something that I wanted. Beneath a glassy sea punctuated with stubs of former towers was a subsurface void, more than a basement, less than a cavern. An overlay matched the place as the Quran's palace, and I told it to mark it and look further. The next day, I made up some story about remaining pockets of parasite that needed to be eradicated. We would craft some targeted impacts using rubble from a nearby world that... Oh, I remarked, I think it's important to verify that subsurface void. I took Benalla with me in a cutter while they went off to shape rubble into kinetics. We autopilot hovered over the frozen ripples of melted stone, surrounded by nuclear damper fields that made everything more or less safe, and dropped out of the hatch as the first people to set foot on this world in a century. I have to admit that Benalla was efficient. I had told him what I wanted, and he made sure we had the tools. Dampers, rad suits, cutters, diggers, even a flexible ladder. In short order, we were in an underground chamber, filled with stark shadows as our headlamps swept left and right and left again. Benalla stood guard against the hypothetical parasite carriers that might remain while I sought my true goals. I found one almost immediately and despaired. How could I ever carry away this vast collection of forbidden third millennium knowledge? Row after row filled shelf after shelf with bound volumes. Perhaps a third had tumbled to the floor in fans of disarray. It would take days, I thought, until I saw the centrally placed console and its racks of numbered data packs. The shelves were numbered. The data packs were numbered. Logic told me that one was the backup of the other. I wasn't sure which was which. I fumbled with the connector and verified that cartridge K3 had petabytes of data, readable data. I selected one text at random, found shelf K3 with the same text title content. Benalla, we need to rescue this set of data packs. It will take several trips. He was even more resourceful than I had thought. He pulled out some sort of gray web and wrapped it around not the cartridges, but the rack itself, and then pulled a cord tight. The entire bundle lifted of its own accord, and he started to drag it toward the shaft. I needed to find my second goal, and so set off from this library of shadows. The corridor outside connected to a series of negatives, supply rooms, paired freshers, an environment stabilizer for heat and air quality, 
I noticed a blinking diagnostic in the dark and chided myself for faulty assumptions. My armored glove touched the wall switch, and the lights came on. Benalla yelped in the communicator. It's okay. The backup power is still working. I never thought to try the switch. That scared me half to death. My search was now somewhat easier. I continued down the corridor to a locked, more than locked, armored door. Benalla, please come here. When he arrived, he, as I expected and hoped, produced some small pointed object that made the door fall open. Inside the vault were the true treasures of the Quran's palace, antique charters in protective binders, attesting to the ownership of this patch of land and clump of buildings, several brown satchels of credit certificates, and over in the corner, an armored red metal container of biologicals for the hereditary family of this long-term enterprise, a generation yet unborn. I need that red thing, I said. I took the brown ones as well. We were back in orbit by the time the beagle returned. I spun a story. I talked about the Karand as the alternate genetic line of the shadow emperors of the First Imperium, about how more than once the death of an airless emperor had triggered the automatic coronation of the Karand during the First Empire. The historical value of what we had found was unimaginable. All were to be congratulated. There would be bonuses all round. We prepared the data packs for shipment to the archives at reference. I made a point of reviewing random pieces and confirmed that Ansha had correctly described the materials. With that complete, I took steps to meet my Rule 5 responsibilities. The red embryo transports appeared unharmed. Working with Benalla, we scanned the records of the first survey for this world's twin, or if not twin, at least close sibling. We found two, and not being able to decide, I chose both. Half the embryos went spinward to Taman and Deneb. The other half went rimward to Sikura in Diaspora. Each was accompanied by specific instructions on decanting and quickening. The brown bags of money would provide for those orphaned children to adulthood. And with that, my bargain with Ansha was complete. On a whim, I reviewed the standard information systems that the ship carried. With some effort, I recalled the name of the tech who had created the astrofence for me. Niffield. I found a Niffield made Baron Sima some ninety years before. His son was a Marquis of a neighboring world, his daughter a Baroness. I wanted to think I had something to do with that, but allowed that I probably would never know. Many ships jumped to capital. I opened my eyes standing on the concourse of the stadium, surrounded by a throng and facing one single person flanked by a handful. I recognized Ansha, and when our eyes met, he smiled. I thank you with all that I can. You have saved more than my life. You have saved my line. There can be no suitable reward for what you have done. There's little to say to such effusive praise, and I responded with a formulaic. I am pleased that you are pleased. Ansha gestured to beyond the railing. Our grandsons and daughters live because of you. Our appreciation knows no bounds. This from an archon of a family that I had killed. I wanted to think that he understood why. As I stood there, he stepped toward me and spoke in a lower voice, confidentially, to me alone. The Nikik lure is more important than you know. Don't let it languish in the archives. Read it. Understand it. 
It holds amongst this chaff the secrets of the universe. 2359-358-621 In core sector, above Ploku, Trak, Crumpton, Morai, Ion, Urkan, Kadsen, Yershpoi, and the reed Ermin Belt. The more than 400 ships of the Second Expeditionary Fleet each executed their exacting instructions to the minute. Their crews had spent the last half year tuning their drives in preparation. In their various locations, two to five parsecs from capital in every direction, they congregated in the Kuipers and the Orts, depending on stepchild gas giants and spinster ice junks for their refueling. In their approach, when they arrived in those neighboring systems, they immediately broadcast mission identifiers with false itineraries, a fast response team from capital to land, an express shipment for the Soleimani Rim, emergency personnel transfers, which certainly made sense with a new emperor, and there was always a new emperor, fast shipments, clandestine missions, hastily documented transfers are all more commonplace than most expect. Ships moving away from capital don't meet the criteria for threat, risk, or danger. An uptick in traffic away from capital means little. What the sensors and scanners saw aroused no concern. The primaries jumped precisely on schedule at 2359. The auxiliaries waited three hours and began their jumps at 0317, not knowing if they would arrive to victory or defeat. Holidays Eve when the imperial calendar was created, everyone already knew that 365 modulo 7 is 1. What to do with the 1? The establishing proclamation created 52 identical weeks composed of seven named days. One day always fell on 002, 009, and in sequence. Sen day always fell on 008, 015, and in sequence to 365. That first day, 001, became holiday. Never a one-day, never a two-day, always its own celebratory observance of the end of the old year and the beginning of the new. 360-621, Core Sector, 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population, Imperial Capital. The Lady Arbolatra, 3rd Duchess of Rylanor, Baroness Alcalacoy, arrived by jump lighter to a suitable, if generic, reception at Capital Down Starport. Even the jaded officials of the Starport Authority knew better than to deliberately snub a duchess. They whisked her down a ceremonial corridor as travelers and sightseers, held back by a flimsy barrier and the glares of armed and armored enforcers, gawked and wondered who this particular noble was. By evening, images were featured on subscription communications for those who made following nobles an avocation. The protocol office, various intelligence agencies, and a few scholarly think tanks made note of the details. By the next day, the public focus had moved on. The lady stayed at a ducal suite in one of the boutique hotels near the palace. Within hours, the functionaries, whose job it was to handle visiting nobles, sent appropriate, if generic, welcome packages. Her retainers talked to those who showed up in person, calendaring events and appointments, arranging for briefings and receptions. 
As important as a duchess might be, there was something that mattered even more. The moot proxies that she held personally, and those she controlled by designation. If she were to step onto the floor of the moot, all her personal proxies that she had granted would revert to her. Any proxies she had been granted, from family, subordinates, partners in power, friends, even tolerant enemies, would automatically activate, supplanting any current holdings. There was a financial cost associated with such steps. The various stipends would need to be refunded pro rata. Transferred proxies would require suitable compensation to the previous holder. Then again, at these levels of power, the nobility rarely concerned itself with such matters. There were squadrons of accountants and consultants who handled such details. Their functionaries asked her retainers, would the Duchess be attending the moot? For year-end ceremonies? The start-of-the-year convocation? Was the Duchess available to speak at the Mid-Year Heroes Day event? Unspoken. Was she intending to remain very long? The retainers had been briefed and gave carefully prepared answers. Yes, no, yes, probably not. All of which were truthful, in case there was a psi talent or a body language reader in the area. By the end of the day, the tide of supplicants had ebbed, and the Duchess and her consort settled in for a well-deserved respite. The crush began anew the next day and continued unabated. The lady was in a new environment. She wore elegant suits instead of naval uniforms. She portrayed herself as intelligent, interested, interesting, important, but there was no mention that she was a grand admiral of the marches. News of her fleet was yet weeks away by ordinary news channels. Reading her published bio told part of the story. Daughter of the marriage of a duke and Emperor Olav's half-sister. Commissioned captain in the Imperial Navy at age 16. Acclaimed titular victor of the Second War against the Jodani at age 33. Appointed Grand Admiral of the Marches by her uncle Emperor. Her behavior fleshed out the apparent truth as she shopped for clothes at the fashionable shops en route de Palais and gawked at the icons at the center of the known galaxy. The Naval Intelligence Servants knew differently. They had full service records of every person who now served or who had ever served, all as up-to-date as possible, even the communications lags of jump. Lieutenant Commander Jalil Shugili noted the computer-generated exceptions and added suitable assessments that labeled the Duchess a figurehead controlled by several corporate factions in the Spinward Marches and propelled to her current heights of accomplishment by nepotism rather than talent. He classified the results penultimate security, marked them reviewed, and forwarded them to a hold file for later publication. He knew that the Emperor's staff would have them within an hour. Later that day, a baronetess captain in the Imperial Navy, in full finery including a shoulder cord signifying that she actually spoke with the Emperor at least once a week, called on the Duchess with an invitation to the Holiday's Eve celebration three days hence. Arbalatra's response was, Oh my goodness, I shall need a suitable dress. I have absolutely nothing to wear, as she dashed off leading the captain to make her own way out. The invitation specified the celebration would be aboard BK Lioness in stationary orbit above capital. It did not mention the usual site, the palace, half destroyed in the contention last year between Marava and Usuti, 
It was also impolite to mention that since then, Ivan had killed Usudi, Martin VI had killed Ivan, and Gustus had killed Martin. Gustus had been on their throne for almost ten months. 365-621, aboard BK Lioness, above Core Sector 2118 Capital, A586-A98D, High Population, Imperial Capital. In the ready room, the designated first company of ceremonial guards was making last-minute preparations for the security of the Emperor. Third company had just finished their duty and sweeps of the ballroom. Second company was in place maintaining security as deliveries for the celebration continued. First company would step into place just before the Emperor arrived. The captains and sergeants hovered over their troops, ensuring all was in readiness. A bark brought all to their feet and braced rigidly as the battalion commander entered. Force Commander Arlen West, S.E.H., was a hero of the recent war and had been riding everyone almost as hard as basic training, striving for a perfection worthy of serving the Emperor and the Empire. In the previous weeks, he had recalled time and again the credo drilled into every Marine's brain. Obey, even if it's stupid or suicidal or without explanation. Obey. Now he stepped forward accompanied by a captain and a lieutenant. I am Agent West of the Quarantine, acting under Edict 97. I have served the Empire my whole life, and I serve her now. By your silence, you actively affirm my authority and that your oath to the Empire requires your unswerving obedience. Speak now or forever be damned if you waver in the slightest. He walked among them, inspecting each for the slightest wrinkle or imperfection. The lieutenant preceded him. The captain followed. From time to time a Marine was dismissed from the formation and escorted from the chamber. After, in a meeting room, the three officers conferred. West spoke first. Only seven failed out of sixty. Are you certain of the rest? The captain spoke first. Body language is not an exact science, but I erred on the side of caution. The rest betrayed no sign of problems. The lieutenant added, Nor is Psy exact, but I agree with the captain's calls. You picked three others. Why? They emoted wrong. They didn't react quite right when you said obey. I don't want to take any chances, sir. You have both done well. Sequester the culls. Make them think their failure was in preparation. Earlier, West had the lieutenant privately evaluate the captain, and the captain privately evaluate the lieutenant. Each had affirmed the other was prepared to obey. Forced move 5. 365-621, above gas giant Zimoway, core sector 2118, capital. A586-A98-D, high population world, imperial capital. The Central Fleet patrolled the single most strategic point in the capital system, its gas giant. No intruder could hope for continued operations without control of a fuel point. The fleet's ships were in a state of heightened readiness, ready for almost any contingency. The Admiral himself sat on the bridge of the flagship and monitored events. The Second Expeditionary Fleet numbered 402 ships, but that count was misleading. More than half were miners, auxiliaries, and tenders. The only ones that anyone counted were the capitals, a variety of battleships and dreadnoughts and siege engines. Some were fresh from the victories of the Second Frontier War, 
and were built to express current fighting doctrine. Others had joined the expedition en route and ranged from modern to obsolete. The total for the only ships that had a chance was 80. The laws of chance govern time and junk. Long ago, navies learned to tune their drives to near perfection. 168 hours, plus or minus a 50th, but the result is still a bell curve around the intended arrival time. Of 80 ships, the first dribbles would appear three hours before, peaking at a quarter of them precisely on time, and then dribbling back to only a few by the end of the next three hours. The strategic plan took all this into account. At precisely 2012, 365, 621, just under four hours to midnight, three Imperial dreadnoughts flashed out of jump space near capital's largest gas giant, Jimaway. Chance dictated that Kukari was the very first of the three. Breakout from the astrogation tech. Various voices spoke aloud what the sensors and scanners were showing. I show six capitals in formation orbit at the gas giant. No sign of carriers. Sensop contributed. We are first. Snowcatus and Shelinx just arrived. Captain Sir Buchanan Trent felt like he had won the lottery. He spoke for the record, confirming what his officers already knew. I assume command of the expeditionary fleet. Change our identifiers. Open a channel to local. Other bridge crew continued journaling aloud. Siege Hesagen has just appeared. Minutes passed. And we have a hail from Central Fleet Flag. Put it on. The greetings were cordial, naval officer to naval officer. These first few minutes were crucial. Aboard Tigris, Central Fleet Flag, the general mood was positive. Holiday's Eve pretended a new year that promised to be happy and better than the last. Although some crew were celebrating in the mess, bridge positions were fully staffed and at a reasonable state of readiness. The reply from Kokari showed on the main screen. Holiday greetings from Squadron 90. Admiral, I am Commodore Buchanan Trent, and I convey my respects as we arrive a week early on this Holiday's Eve. Admiral Isazi on Tigris bantered greetings with the new arrival, and they continued for several minutes. Astrogation Tech Newell reacted to the data he saw and touched a panel to alert his lieutenant, who came and looked over his shoulder. The graphic showed the icons of the three new arrivals mapped against a bell curve. Their time and jump was remarkable. They all broke out within three minutes of each other. That is very good drive tuning. As they watched, another icon showed on the screen and the bell curve expanded. That last one just reduced their efficiency from remarkable to just excellent. The lieutenant turned away to check on other sensor data, only to be called back five minutes later. There are a few stragglers coming in. Their efficiency just dropped to very good. What squadron size are you using? The tech pointed to a number. Standard six ships, sir. Something's not right. Are there any auxiliaries? No, sir, just capitals. Snowcatus, Shelinx, and Kukari, then a siege, and now uncompromising. It is strange to have dissimilar classes in the same squadron. Increase squadron size to two. The bell curve widened. Now three. The humped line on the screen widened even more. Sir, there's a new arrival. Map the curve to fit what we have so far. The screen now showed a scatter of ship icons with names attached, and a cloud of gray possibles extending into the future. 
the best fit predicted ten squadrons, some sixty well-armed dreadnoughts, and another dozen carriers and sieges. The lieutenant walked the five steps to his commander and showed a tablet with the prediction, who snatched it to immediately show the admiral in mid-conversation. Battle stations. The screens went blank. Klaxons sounded throughout Tigris, and seconds later throughout the other ships in the squadron. Crew boiled out of their comfortable celebrations to turrets and weapons bays and spinal mounts. Aboard Kakari, Commodore Trent spoke. They're on to us. Take us to battle stations. Crew were already in place and ready. It was a formality. Get that Admiral back on the screen. Admiral Asazi was a confident angry. Stand down, Commodore. This is the Emperor's space, and there is no room for usurpers or troublemakers. I do not know your scheme, but it will never work. You have ten minutes to cap your guns, shut down your fire control, and confirm it with data streams. If you do not, my ships will destroy you. Admiral, we mean you no ill will. Our squadron is on a mission in service to the Empire, and, no matter your mission, I will not tolerate your insolence here. Admiral, I beg you to listen to reason. Your twelve ships are no match for us, and we will not be stopped. Commodore, and that is a rank you will not hold for more than another hour, you will stand down. You have eight minutes. As they spoke, another capital broke out. Admiral Isazi's confidence was not misplaced. The astrofence made these schemers powerless, and they would be easy targets. At the moment, his twelve faced nine, who could not return fire. As more capitals arrived, each would face the same fate. Six minutes. A sensor tech reported, Intruder Kokari is powering main weapon. Isazi waved him confidently silent. Commodore Trent had been thoroughly briefed on the next step. Admiral, it pains me for anyone in our common navy to suffer, but it is important for you to understand that we bear you no ill will. I call to your attention fast cruder Amesh, which you must concede is protected by your astrofence. That startled Isazi. Trent continued, A battle between us would cost many lives. You have good ships, but so do we. You have good crews, but so do we. I count your hulls at twelve, and by the first minute of the new year I will have a hundred. That was not precisely accurate, but it would do for the moment. None of my ships are constrained by your astrofence. Your imagined advantage is an illusion. Your surrender is a rational response to this situation and your personal and crew safety is guaranteed. They're powering up, sir. Kukari is firing, sir. The spinal Mazon gun fired, and a mesh exploded. The strongest squadron does not always win the battle, but that is not what will happen here. Power down now. The Admiral stood conflicted by pride and duty, reason and emotion. The bridge crew waited with anticipation until... Isazi could not bring himself to say the word surrender. Commodore, I acquiesce. To his bridge. Come down from battle stations. Maintain screens and protectives. There was no point in risking perfidy by the other side. Another arriving battle shed energy as it broke out of jump. Admiral, you and your squadron are now safe. At Trent's direction, the prearranged victory signal was posted. Newly arriving ships would know what steps to take. What time is it? 23.12, sir. Precisely. Send the surrender announcement. 
Jimue's battle space stood 45 light minutes from capital. The pre-written surrender announcement was to be transmitted to arrive precisely at 2359. He had been privately instructed, as had every potential battle commander, to transmit the scripted announcement no matter what, win, lose, draw, or stalemate. 365-621 aboard BK Lioness above Core Sector 2118, Capital. A586A98D, High Population, Imperial Capital. The Holidays Eve celebration preparations had transformed the main hangar deck of Lioness into a luxury ballroom sufficient for a thousand guests. Next year, crews would have to spend weeks removing the decorative paint and returning it to battle hull gray. Compartments and storage chambers were converted to intimate primping chambers and pre-ball dining rooms. Crew had been training for weeks for servant and footperson roles. Graphic artists had designed grand hanging banners proclaiming the power and majesty of the Empire and the Emperor. Chefs and stewards had been specifically imported to prepare and serve gourmet meals for the elite of the galaxy. Nobles were notorious for seconding spacers as footmen and marines as retainers. There was a universal excitement in the air. Dignitaries hosted their own pre-ball receptions and parties. Massive bays that usually held rows of single-seat fighters or racks of kinetic kill ordnance had been cleared, scrubbed clean of their solvent and preservative odors, and redecorated for the sensitivities of nobles and magnates. Ambassadors hosted the elites of bordering fiefs. Dukes graciously entertained their vassals, who scurried and flattered and ate strange delicacies from carefully arranged trays labeled for multiple digestive systems. Short-sighted cliques stayed with their close friends, wasting incomparable opportunities to mingle and circulate. Arrivals at the ball proper were scheduled from 21 to 22. Individuals, couples, and groups were deposited at the grand entrance by the battleship's internal transport system to be announced as their particular origins or fiefs were highlighted on an immense overhead display and many scattered repeaters. Kvudther, the emissary of Erilatok, an affine Lady Elaine. The announcer was meticulous in his pronunciation. The Holloway of Junidi and the Oyolu Oyolu, a pair of Lelawali, so-called dandelions, encased in stylish protective suits. Baron Dr. Grain Argush, an overlarge, heavy-world six-ped, attending alone, although escorted by a human servant. His massive tail nearly toppled a baroness as he passed. Imperial Marine Force Commander Sir Arlen West, S.E.H., entering alone, in full-dress uniform, devoid of medals and badges, except for a single silver 21-rayed star on a ribbon around his neck. The legendary starburst for extreme heroism. Most are awarded posthumously. Captain Dame Argenta Smee, Marchioness Diron, and the Baronet's Minor, two brawny men, one on each arm of an older woman in naval uniform. The holders of Lumda Dower, three Varger of indeterminate gender, dressed in finery that would embarrass any human. Fatau of Clan Tilruy, and Fatal Herley, a great Aslan male with a sash decorated with enameled badges, a smaller female following one step behind. The list continued, about half being human, 
the rest a scattering of various sophants of the empire. For those who noticed such things, there were no Jodani invited. Lord Nellian, Viscount Janasva, and the Lady O. The Lady Arbolatra, co-duchess of Rylanor, and Captain Sir Rice Ap Connor. With the announcement, she smiled. Observers saw narcissistic joy. Within, she noted that the title co-duchess was a protocolic violation, used here as a code that Lieutenant Commander Shigili was indeed in place and had achieved his purposes. Arbolatro was greeted several strides later by a social documentarian and several media imagers recording for posterity. We have here the Lady Arbolatra in a stunningly white gown of semi-reflectives and a stunning embedded swirl pattern. The effect sweeps the floor while the ship neck stunningly frames her fire jam throature. And I see embroidered on your strap the triple sunburst of an admiral of the Imperial Navy. Tell me, lady, in recognition of your husband, or perhaps your father. Wait, well, she's gone. Indeed, Arbolatra had moved on, even now without patience for fools who could not use a simple data lookup. The next two hours involved refreshments, chance and non-chance meetings between guests, and various organized activities. One corner hosted a guessing game with nonsense badges as prizes. There were periods of organized group dancing punctuated by laughter at clumsy missteps. There were interludes of romantic three-steps. As the countdown moved everyone towards the start of a new year, the internal lighting flashed with each beat. Individuals stood and activated noisemakers, light flashers, smell emitters, and other devices in anticipation and more or less in time with the count. At the countdown 14, Arbolatra rose and started toward the raised dais holding the emperor and his immediate entourage. By eight, she was halfway across the dance floor. At six, she reached the fifth captain of the emperor's guard, just before the three-step rise. As she passed him, he passed her his red-handled front arm. Five, the base of the steps. Lights flashed. Small pieces of lucky colored plastic flew from concealed projectors. Four. Step one. Her right hand and gun enveloped in the fold of her skirt. Three. Step two. The first hint of awareness appeared on the fringes of the group. Two. On the rise of the dais itself. Five strides from the emperor. Her dress changed from white to glowing yellow. The imperial color. One. She raised the pistol and fired. To most, there was almost no sound. Some in the crowd, mostly Varger, winced as the silencer shifted the gunshots into frequencies higher than humans could hear. The Emperor fell, his head a mass of blood and visible brains. Her shots aimed to bypass any possible armor. They achieved their purpose. Those standing nearby dropped to the floor, or dived to the sides, or just stood paralyzed. Some, without regard to gender, screamed. Those farther away turned to the dais as it became the center of attention. Immediately, abruptly, the screens flashed blank, white, then yellow, with a black imperial sunburst centered. A crawler on the screen bottom announced, The central fleet of the false emperor has surrendered to the forces of Grand Admiral Akalakoi at 2359-365-621, and repeated, Twelve marines rushed the dais and literally threw the emperor's retinue down the three steps while surrounding the lady, facing outward. Twelve more marines appeared at the base of the dais as a further layer of protection. 
A second screen crawler appeared above the first. The false emperor has been deposed. The moot has established a regency to identify the proper heir to the Iridium throne. A klaxon blasted to silence the various murmurs, screams, and chaotic outcries. The lights dimmed to quarter intensity. Comms throughout the hall vibrated or chirped as news media transmitted bold headlines and supporting data. The Emperor's anthem sounded its seventeen-stroke beat. The Marines parted, and the lady stepped forward in her glowing yellow dress under a full-intensity spot as the first captain of the Emperor's Guard announced in amplification, Lords and ladies, I present to you the Regent Arbolatra and a new era for the Empire. The full silence, the carefully prepositioned clacks in the audience began to applaud. The others took their cue and applauded as well. Maybe, just maybe, this was the end of the cycle of assassination and naval strife. In the hours that followed, there was confusion over how the moot came to decide to establish a regency, but ultimately an emergency council ratified what had already happened. Contrarians noted that time of the Central Fleet surrender could not be reconciled with light lag, but the elation of a new year combined with a new regent's promises of peace and prosperity made their theories old news. Marines escorted the false emperor's inner circle into side chambers, where they were quickly briefed on the details of the coup. Faced with this accomplished fact, most chose the path of discretion. A few recalcitrants were escorted deeper into the bowels of the ship, and some of those never reappeared. The lady, now regent, Arbolatra, met with noble after noble well into the night, generally in groups of three or four. She greeted them cordially, exchanged pleasantries, at times pointing out that all proxies had expired under their terms, and there was a lot of work to be done renewing them. Before each left, however, she insisted on a personal reaffirmation of their individual vows to her as regent, properly witnessed and verified. From time to time she gave side instructions. Bring me that social documentarian, who appeared cowering. I want to clear the record. The embroidery is my own personal rank, fairly earned and well-deserved. I am a, no, the, Grand Admiral of the Marches, senior in rank to anyone west of land. Assemble the Emperor's Guard, who appeared singly before her, each to receive an excess from her hand and a knighthood. Within a week, all twenty-four received orders to twenty-four different systems throughout the Empire and carefully written instructions to preach the legitimacy of the Regency. Bring me the captain of Lioness. He forced from him an oath of fealty and instructed that he surrender his captaincy to one of her officers. Bring me the family of the false emperor, brother, sister, son, daughters, nibs. She greeted each cordially, insisted on an oath of loyalty, and observed the reactions of the empath and the body-language reader standing off to one side. At her gesture, some were escorted to the antechamber to the right, others to the passageway to the left. None of them could be allowed to press a claim to the Iridium throne. To Encyclopediopolis It was a ball of worthless rock, ignored for millennia, and rightly so. To the first empire, it was Shishustar, apparently spite-named for someone who earned the scorn of a local noble. During the long night, charts called it Mamatava, 
Its minimal population died out when the supply ships stopped coming. With the rise of the Third Imperium, several companies tried to repurpose its subsurface warrens, but to little success. One company's name, however, became attached to the world, Adkian. An arbitrary decision literally put Adkian on the map. Someone in the Imperial Interstellar Scout Service decided that this particular world was precisely on the plane of this galactic disk and exactly 10,000 parsecs from the center of the galaxy. For interstellar mapping purposes, it was on ring 10,000.1, the reference line for the astrographic coordinate system passing through the Adkian system. They renamed the world Reference. Reference became the prime base for the Imperial Interstellar Scout Service and headquarters for its bureaucracy. Appropriate bureaucrats and functionaries still served on capital, closer to the reins of power, but the leaders of the IISS preferred to be off in their own independent fief. As prime base, Reference was a training center. The associated University of Adkin became the natural home for the latest research in astronomy, physics, cosmology, planetology, and sophontology. Reference also became a repository for the masses of data that the IISS collected. Originally, the collections were chaotically and haphazardly managed, but in 300, Empress Porphyria ordered the first survey, the first comprehensive astrographic and demographic catalog of the worlds of the Imperium. To house the data and the samples it gathered, the service created an entire city, Encyclopediopolis. Imagine a city devoted to information, not just any information, but the vital, essential, scholarly information about every world of the empire, the information that defines its planetography, its resources, its people. Some architectural genius designed a grid of soaring towers, one for every sector, with a level for every system. Each tower is a kilometer long and a hundred meters thick. Depending on its namesake sector, a building might be a thousand or fifteen hundred meters tall. Strewn at four-kilometer intervals, the spaces between are filled with apartments, markets, services, and recreation for the staff that service the collections every day. These collections are not discovery museums that reward children's guesses with pleasant noises or entertain them with fatuous recreations, or whose displays are ignored by dashing urchins more concerned with their snacks and souvenirs. They are old-style museums filled with row upon row, shelf upon shelf, drawer upon drawer of classic samples. Dedicated academics turn to these repositories to confirm their hypotheses, to disprove rivals' theories, for inspiration and insight, or just for the delight of reviewing materials in their fields. Of course, even the best-made plans go awry. One level was not enough for capital. One level was too much for the Imperial Reserve on Onan. Soon, the latter was a locked room accessible only with authorization, while the former expanded to two, then three, and finally four levels in the tower named Four. The collections are also unevenly maintained. Powerful, important worlds anxious to put their best peds forward provide stipends to researchers and curators. Casual tourists see all that such worlds have to offer. Serious business people find troves of data in support of trade, and economic development. On the other hand, there are entire levels that are little more than an empty expanses punctuated by a few transpex cases of rocks and minerals 
dried fronds with unclassified seed pods, and musty reports filled with boring detail. Some levels are simply locked, accessible only to those who can establish a need to know or who have certified permission from an authority figure. Not everyone is allowed to browse data on the reserves of the imperial family or worlds interdicted for the protection of the public or simply worlds with something someone wants to keep secret. Encyclopediopolis does not restrict its subject matter to the Imperium. On the fringes, its suburbs, so to speak, of the city, are sprawling towers dedicated to the Empire's neighbors, the Varger, the Aslan, the Jordani Towers to the west, the Kakri, the Hiver, the Soleimani Towers to the east. The subsurface appendix warrens in the mountain range to the south are long-term storage for the obscure, the outdated, and the oversized. Scholars and expeditions study individual worlds, and the best of their research finds its way to the appropriate level of the proper tower in Encyclopediopolis. Meta-scholars visit Encyclopediopolis because they can wander, or dash, depending on their temperament, from room to room, level to level, tower to tower, immersing themselves in data and samples as they try to correlate random information into coherent answers to the pressing questions of the universe. Who were the ancients? Who were the Cursae? Who were Karanda's sparks? Why are there forty or a hundred or two hundred variant human races, all traceable to Terra? Why, at the same time, have the Canids, also of Terra, only produced two variant races? Why has Terra produced more native intelligent life than any other world? What was so special about Terra anyway? Why is psionics independent of genetics? Who built the failed ring world at Linidakak? How does the multi-world Venatoro civilization of Listanaya sector manage without intelligence? Why is gas giant life so rare in charted space and so abundant beyond? Why is the entire trailing spiral arm, a million systems some two thousand parsecs from here, barren? Is there a faster jump drive? A better maneuver drive? A more efficient power source? Why are so many Sofant societies content to live out their generations without ever leaving their homeworlds? Why do some Sofants advance in technology so rapidly? Why do some plod so slowly? Is there a limit to advances in technology? What could Tech Level 25 possibly be like? Tech Level 50? TL 100? Is TL 1000 even imaginable? Why haven't we met Sofants with truly advanced technology? What is the meaning of life? Different scholars have come to different conclusions. 004-622, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586A98D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. I hope I am doing the right thing. I'll be dead again in three weeks. It will take me 14 just to get to Adkin. I hope this works. That's what I was thinking when I boarded the liner. I knew where I had to go. It was at the far end of the ship. So I made my way past the opulence and decadence of luxury staterooms, posh appointments, cloying stewards with affected Volani accents, and well-heeled passengers, VIPs, CEOs, trade magnates, robber barons, diplomats, snobs all, so I assumed. And I continued past the working-class passengers, 
a jovial and noisy throng, with nary a steward to be seen. A game room occupied some, media entertainments others, some likely just read in their rooms. And I ventured farther still, almost missing the rows of stacked bunks where passengers flew in steerage. They were mostly screened from view by a large vending machine. If you want to eat in steerage, you have to bring your spare change. And at last I reached the room that makes blood run cold. No, literally. Marked by a jagged blue bolt. An icicle, really. The entryway opened up to a Spartan chamber with an untidy stack of coffin-sized affairs. The low berths. A person of indeterminate age sat in front of a screen. A chariotscuro of color ran riot over his face as he soaked up whatever entertainment was playing on his monitor. I waited. Eventually he, sullenly, acknowledged my presence. A tip perked him up. My last one hundred credits. They say that low-birth attendants ought to be tipped. Anyone who is responsible for nearly killing you and waking you up again ought to be tipped, thinks I. 342-622 Core Sector 0140 Reference B100727-C Vacuum World Pre-Industrial World Data Repository And sure enough, I awoke. A puff of air confirmed that my pod had been opened and I was alive to tell the tale. A gruff, pre-recorded voice croaked out, Welcome to Adkian. Get up and assemble at the end of the chamber. In an endless, it seemed, loop. I stretched and finally clambered out. There were eight other low passengers, some already out, some still struggling to awaken cold limbs. Humans and non-humans, males and females, and others, all various ages. The attendant, maybe a steward, maybe not, passed by, handing me a numbered alloy chit. When each one of us had a chit, he said, Look at your number. Who has? He reached into a box and pulled out a card. Six. Mine was the six. You win, he said, with some irony, and handed me ten fifty-credit coins. I looked down the chamber to the tenth pod. Red telltales blinked. I had won, as had the others in a somewhat lesser way. The one in the tenth pod had lost. We stepped out into a corridor with directional signs. Baggage this way, transport that way, information another way. I had no baggage, and I knew what I needed. I set off towards transport. 343-622, Core Sector, 0140. Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Depository. The low gravity of reference put a spring in my step as I strolled the already moving walkway from my hotel. I could see the parade of soaring sector towers through a transparent canopy. I had survived cold sleep, telescoping two-thirds of a year into only one debit against my allotted credit of thirty sleeps before oblivion again embraced me. I was anxious to get started. Most facilities in the Empire are dual-labeled in Anglic and Volani. Here they were multi-labeled in ten languages, and plentiful kiosks provided support for yet more languages. I soon understood that each tower had a prominent logo, and intersections were tastefully marked assist travelers. My goal was Jerushagar Tower. Its icon was a stylized red flower. 
Soon I could identify it as the red monolith among a rainbow of primary colors, taller than its neighbors to the south, shorter than the denser sectors to the north. The ground-level concourse for Jerushagar provided an overview, a massive holo star chart showing the worlds of the sector surrounded by accessible data streams with detailed information. I wanted Deus. The screen said level 270, about halfway up. I took the lift shaft and was there before I knew it. Deus, local name Devalia, homeworld for the Kepk, a five-ped sofant with a prehensile snout above and a similar prehensile excreter below. Settled by humans from Shiwani in the third millennium, eventually one major continent was predominantly human. The other was predominantly indigenes. The words blurred into gray and my attention wandered. The final sentence on the board said, although in nicer words, scrubbed in 501. There was a clerk at a desk, and I adopted an academic approach. Excuse me, I'm here to see the collection? Adding a high-rising terminal. I realized that this person was a kept, perhaps one of a few thousand still alive. Register here, please, in a whistling voice, followed by, Is there anything specific you are looking for? I replied in the negative, and it handed me a tablet filled with guides and access fields. I wandered the corridors, browsing transpects cases and data consoles, immersing myself in everything I could about Deus. It was the first time I had taken this sort of break in 40 months, or 200 years, depending on how I counted. Time flew. The lights flashed, and the tablet showed a warning that the level would be closing in an hour. I started my way back to the main desk. I presented my question to the clerk. I try to search, several in fact, but I'm not finding what I want. Perhaps you know more about the search process? An HRT again for its effect. What is the search topic? In a few words, I would say false knowledge, perhaps nikik lure. They touched some surfaces and my tablet responded. We don't have any examples. The concept is reflected in some 5th and 6th millennium records. You can access the records on the tablet. There's nothing to see here in the collection. Had they not yet been recovered? If they were, I would have sent them here. The place was closing. I returned the tablet to its rack and made my way out. I was depressed. Not clinically. I had never had that challenge. Attitudinally, however, I was seeing that my goals were going to be a long time in achieving. I almost certainly needed more than my remaining twenty sleeps. I started back to my hotel, but distracted somehow, I ended up in a starport lounge, the ubiquitous Lone Star a franchise found on most worlds. Scouts and spacers like to spend their free time spinning stories and making or renewing friendships at this sort of place. The Lone Star isn't really a bar, although it does serve alcohol. It also serves liquid caffeine in several forms, mild mood enhancers, and various calmatives. All Lone Stars are the same. Each one is different. In this instance, the scouts tended to be visitors rather than locals the few traders anxious because there was little in the way of goods to buy or sell. The house specialty was an imported cheese broiled to liquid and served with some sort of crunchy covering. I bought a plate and offered some to those seated near me. So, he said, striking up a conversation, what brings you to reference, business or pleasure? We talked for a while. 
He wanted to dispose of a cargo that was losing value rapidly. When he decided I was not a prospect, he excused himself and moved on. Half of my mind was surveying the room, and the other half was worrying about implementing a plan before my next three sleeps expired. It was at that point that I saw Angeline, and my subconscious told my conscious that there was a solution. I did not yet know her name. She entered through the main doors with a self-confidence that belied her appearance. She was dressed not to impress, for comfort alone. Her arms were bare, yet covered with tiger stripes tattooed into her skin. Her hair was short in a female spacer convention. Her exotic attractiveness was entirely independent of her gender. At the bar, she ordered purified water and found a booth on her own. I knew what she was. I had seen her before. I wondered if anyone else knew. I made my way over. I had a plan. May I join you? No. Try again. Please? Dinner, perhaps. Stories? Nothing serious? Just an evening's diversion? No, you have evaluated me wrong. Ah, but I haven't. I have no ill intentions, no misconceptions. Life is too short for that. I sat down despite her refusal. We have met before. If I remember correctly, on death suits in Vland. Then again, perhaps it wasn't you specifically. Probably not, she said. I have never been on death suits. We were dancing around who she was, because it isn't polite to call someone a clone, even if she is one. An enforcer might ask, or a customs agent. Ordinary polite citizens didn't. I was polite. I didn't ask directly, but I did sit down. Tell me your name, Rule 1. She resisted, but we were at least talking. You tell me your name first, then we'll see. I would normally use my host's name, but I instead told her my real name. I am Jonathan Bland. She almost dropped her water container. How do you know that name? Who are you? Now we were indeed talking. Her attitude changed. She wanted to at least listen to what I had to say. Her name was Angeline Twelve. The surname numbered generations. She from the second generation following Florine's batch. We talked well into the night. We met again the next day and concluded an arrangement. 353-622, Core Sector 0140, Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Depository. I was happy to not pursue my failsafe plan, find someone with a wafer jack, surprise him, and force my wafer on his neck. Such a course of action was fraught with problems. Not that what we came up with wasn't. Angeline recruited non-scouts as they visited Encyclopediopolis. Scouts had business here. They came here because they were told to. They left when they were finished. Non-scouts arrived because of some whim or casual interest or vagary of ship schedules. They were academics, discharged veterans, the idle rich, sometimes the idle poor. She picked out people who looked like they needed something, usually money, sometimes purpose, sometimes just attention. Most really just needed to be somewhere else, somewhere safe, beyond the reach of the authorities or debt collectors or a shameful past. She found some common interest. She flattered when she needed to, but that was just to get started. Soon enough she was listening to a life story, which she considered an interview. For the right person, she had the answer. For everyone else, the evening ended and she moved on.
The proposal itself was a delicate process. Too abrupt, and she scared them away. Too sketchy, and they couldn't understand. It helped that she had an unusual talent, an innate empathy that helped her best frame the offer. To one, she appealed to patriotism. To another, to the innate goodness of humanity. To a third, charity, curiosity, financial need, the unusual, oblivion, new experience, self-sacrifice, submission. Sometimes she just asked. Sometimes they just agreed. We needed hosts to be sequential. We needed nine to be ready and willing when eight was just finishing up. I needed my complete memories from the last activation to carry on to the next. I arranged for two apartments. She lived in one at the base of Z Tower. She never brought anyone there, not even me. I lived in another in the shadow of Gusumiji. She didn't know where. She used a hotel for the activations, and it changed every time. She made it quick, an insistence that the wafer be pressed in place. The host personality vanished, and I emerged, a constant among a parade of little, big, short, tall, fat, slim, light, dark, weak, strong, young, old men that needed something that this process provided. When the four weeks had elapsed, she and I met again to give her the wafer. We usually shared a meal and discussed the universe, her life and her sister's, my research. I depended on her and thus felt a need to be thoughtful. Rule three. Rule four. I also paid her enough to carry her forward until our next meeting. Rule five. And I gave her the wafer. The last day or two of my activation would be lost to all memory. The host disappeared. I told her that I would board a ship for somewhere and include some form of compensation. Angeline was afraid that I just walked out into the vacuum desert and never came back. But she never asked. 122-631 Four Sector 0140 Reference B100727C Vacuum World Pre-Industrial Data Repository I came to a break. I had found substantial sets of records and made the appropriate correlations. I knew more than I had before, but less than I wanted. I still searched for the Nikik lure, which had to be here, somewhere. I found manifest that another I had retrieved them, had almost certainly sent them here. I knew what I would do, but I cannot control what bureaucrats and clerks and unforeseen circumstances may have done between dais and reference. My search would turn to the annexes to the south. Yet I was unwilling to begin a new awakening of a project. I considered what small interim inquiries I could begin instead. My attention turned to the mining engineer, and I made my way to the arcanum level of the Denob Tower. I was denied entry beyond a small alcove with only basic information. Its red zone status hid details of the world behind authorization scanners and automatic barriers. I spent a few hours in the food court at the top level, enjoying a cuisine sampler for the sector and the views across the worldscape of other towers when I noticed a corporate logo branded on a rooftop below, Nasirka. Using my calm, I pursued my dim memories of Arcanum and the mining engineer. His employer, Min Planco, did not show up in the records. Its parent, Nasirka, one of the megacorporations that dominate the imperial economy, was significant in Deneb 
with its fingers touching many, even most of the sector's worlds. I then realized that my memory was mistaken. The employer name was Three Minco. Now I could discover its mining operations on several worlds and a non-mining installation deep in the sparseness of the Great Rift. Shush. I tried to find the shush level of Denub that afternoon. It was missing. My filter was naturally set for Imperial worlds, and it was not there. I manipulated settings and finally found the answer. Not missing. Technically within the bounds of the neighboring corridor sector, and yet deep enough into the Great Rift that was not even within the Empire. I would need to visit one of the suburban towers, where I finally found it in a small annex for orphan worlds. The first fact I learned was a pronunciation affectation. The world was pronounced shush. The second fact I learned was that shush was literally empty. It was a backwater world on a dead-end route. It had a good quality starport serving a world with less than a hundred inhabitants. What data that was available, surveys, biome censuses, sample catalogs, was on a single console in a smaller chamber with near-empty shelves. I puttered for a while, noted some details that seemed interesting, if not important, and abandoned, no, suspended, my inquiries. Someday I could visit Shush and learn more. 333-632, Core Sector, 0140, Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Repository. I had pursued the Nikik lure for a decade. At times, I now questioned my own memories, for I clearly recalled recovering the trove of files and arranging for them to be shipped to reference. I confirmed the records of Atalanta's visit to Deus. I confirmed the transfer of the Emperors to Taman and Sikora. Nevertheless, the shipment was nowhere to be found. In a decade, I had accumulated a small fraction of what might be in the Nikik lure. I knew more than before. I knew less than I needed. Various dates. Core, Sector, 0140, Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Repository. Bland felt a need to protect his researches on reference. When he finished each phase, the simplest option would be to kill the host. He considered it. One more death on his record wasn't even rounding error. Rule 2. On the other hand, each of these hosts had significantly advanced his work, whether they knew it or not. Each of these men had been recruited because each needed to be somewhere safe. That usually meant somewhere far away. He could do that for them. There was a risk involved but that was just a cost of serving the Empire. Each time it was new to him. He had already surrendered the wafer to Angeline, so these last memories would not be recorded. Each time, he put a card with a spending balance in his pocket, enough to live luxuriously for three years, comfortably for maybe five. He strolled down to the starport and examined the massive display star charts of the Imperium and beyond, randomly picking a destination that looked attractive. He wondered, since he had a memory of his intention, but not of his actions, if he picked the same destination for every host. That prompted him to think up a random process that generated a new destination. He hoped that worked. He bought a low-passage voucher and signed in. He would revive halfway across the Empire, 
and a day or two later he would evaporate, leaving his host with enough to start a new life. Rule 5. He wondered if sometimes, if his researchers had been fruitless in that host, or if he was frustrated or angry or depressed, maybe he did just wander into Ed Kien's vacuum desert, never to return. 251-625, Spinward Marches, 1910, Regina. Land woke up on Regina, unsung true capital of the entire marches. 069-628, Soleimani Rim, Chernozem. Land woke up on Chernozem, beyond the imperial border, deep in the Soleimani Confederation. 280-631, Mishan Sector, Ishamzu. Land woke up on Ishamzu, in one of the former First Empire territories. 111-633, Soleimani Rim, Terra. Land woke up on Terra, homeworld to all of humanity. The date on the obscure local calendar, strangely in Anglic, in fact everyone here seemed to understand Anglic, was September 21st, 5151 CE. 154-635. Empty Quarter, Marhaban. Land woke up on Marhaban, the Newt homeworld on the edge of the Lesser Rift. 338-640. Unknown World. Land woke up on some strange world far beyond the Imperial border, where humans were a true novelty. 113-641. Corridor Sector, Yolksta. Vland woke up on idyllic Eolksta, a mere seventeen direct parsecs from Vland itself, yet halfway into the Great Rift and rarely visited by any but home-returning natives and a few passing traders. 055-642, Lay Sector, Sith. Vland woke up. Two of them, brothers, recruited sequentially on Sith, beyond the Imperial border in Lay Sector. 345-660, Provence Sector, Lair. Land woke up on Lair, the Canid homeworld. He noted casually that his journey had taken a decade. When he checked his manifest, he saw delay after delay as the shipment of his low-birth capsule made its way to its destination. 025-644, Ziaf Sector, Fiddle. Land woke up on Fiddle an obscure world in Jordani territory. Their scions could tell he was no threat despite the enmity between the two empires, and he soon found employment as an Anglic language translation checker. 340-655 Unknown World Land woke up on a strange world without a spoken name somewhere in the Hiver Federation. For each, he did what he could. In the last day of personality, he found a safe place negotiated a reasonable position, and even left his host a note with details of his life in the interim. Maybe that would be enough. Maybe not. 365-641, Core Sector, 0140, Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Repository. My search for the false knowledge and the kernels of truth within continued. With two decades of search now done, my accumulations could still never compare to the fruit of a dedicated fanatic family with lifetimes to devote to the cause. I knew individual data points, 
that lost probe held literally every possible report of strangenesses in deep space and on marginal worlds. I longed for some misfunction to afflict me and give me a lifetime in a host like Lagash and his mission to Bonature. I sometimes wished for this or that, even as I knew wishes were futile expenditures of time and mental processing. Each awakening held the promise of more knowledge, but I needed true lifetimes to find what I needed, and at my current pace the wave would crash over us, the mystical great break would rupture our universe, and the black fleets would destroy us before I had enough to even understand them, let alone respond. Anaplant Lagash Report 7 Video image of an older human woman with silver hair and a short spacer cut. Her collar shows two badges, astrogator and pilot, both properly attached. Her blue eyes focus unwaveringly on the camera lens as she speaks with authority and a meticulous standard Anglic pronunciation. Date stamp 166-552, Report 7. I am now Brevet Captain of Argushi. Rance died yesterday. I knew it was coming. He had been in decline for more than a month, and the clinic diagnostics gave a timeline that proved all too accurate. Before he, and by he I mean Jonathan, passed, we discussed final arrangements. A week ago, the instant we crossed the imperial border, we hailed a Nasirka longliner and gave them message capsules 5 and 6 for delivery to Jonathan's account on Capitol. He felt strongly that both were a part of his mission, indeed the entire reason he had traveled to Bonacher. I discussed our future with the three. They had no interest in leaving. They called this ship their home now and want to continue their lives here. First, we will set course for Wren's birth world, in Arley, on the edge of the Great Rift. I have his sample, his other smallest finger, to return some part of him to his origins. Second, Jonathan himself has given us a mission, to search out the enigma of the black ships that lurk in the remotest regions of inner system space. He has decided that they are important, and who am I to second-guess a decider? Jonathan has confided in me the secret of the override codes. He wanted to ensure that we could overcome any conflicts as we traveled through the Empire, and I am confident that we can travel safely wherever we need to go. Third, the Threep have decided to produce a new generation. They are all very excited. In time, their new litters will become the next crew of Argushi and continue its mission. Lastly, we shall set course for Terra. It is a whim, but I have always wanted to see the home of the earliest Anglic classics, and one destination is as good as another. Who knows if I shall even reach Earth, but I have learned that the journey is more important than the destination. To some future Jonathan who reads this, thank you. Thank you for giving me some portion of my life back and showing me the universe. Appreciation Arbalatra Katami Alkalakoi, 32nd Empress of the Third Imperium, erstwhile Regent, 3rd Duchess of Rylanor, 5th Baroness Alkalakoi, born 037-587 on Rylanor, 
eldest of Duke Anton Roydon Alcalacoy and Lady Maryam Plankwell Katami of Zivigi, inherited the Duchy of Rylanor, 602, commissioned captain in the Imperial Navy by Grand Admiral Olav Halt Plankwell, 603, commanded system defenses during Battle of Rylanor, 603, appointed Grand Admiral of the Marches by Emperor Cleon V in 616, acclaimed victor in the Second Frontier War, 620, personally deposed the false emperor as her fleet defeated his in the Second Battle of Jimawe, 622, proclaimed regent, 622, proclaimed empress, 240-629, died 355-666 on capital, married, 194-623, Duke Sergei Torgyan Ashran of Semplus. Died 147-645. Core Sector 2118. Capital A586A98-D. High Population World. Imperial Capital. The first 30 days of Arbalatra's true reign were filled with the affairs of state and society. Appearances, receptions, appointments and reappointments, masks, conferences, and audiences. They all had a certain inevitable priority which could not be denied. In the second month of her reign, an opportunity presented itself. Overcast skies, rain over the region, and relatively mundane commitments prompted a spur-of-the-moment decision. All was already in readiness in any case. The Empress had made her will known early, and a suitable functionary had made the arrangements. Three hours later, she arrived at the Bolanadin enclave of the necropolis at Intel. Vehicle control had rerouted air traffic beyond line of sight. Her vehicle deposited her within steps of a framed fabric shelter, and she dashed the gap before the light rain could no more than sprinkle on her. Inside, joined by her bodyguard, the Lady O, she found this particular functionary and a Marine lieutenant. Are we ready? Yes, Your Majesty. I'm Xylem. You assigned me to put this together. This is Lieutenant... Yes, yes. Lieutenant, I appreciate your participation in this. Has Xylem briefed you completely? Yes, Your Majesty. Then let's begin. Xylem gave the lieutenant a wafer, and he moved it to the nape of his neck. I awoke to the sound of a gentle rain. I thought that I was in the stadium until I heard a familiar voice. Jonathan, welcome. Bella? Yes, Jonathan. I'm pleased to speak with you again. I observed that we were at my family plot in the necropolis, before my funerary steel. She turned to the others. Leave us. They started to protest. But your majesty, which confirmed my assumptions, but she would brook no resistance. They both exited to the rain outside. As they did. Jonathan, it has been seven years. Your plan has worked admirably. Only now has the regency ended, alas, without locating a suitable heir. But you knew that would be the ending all along, didn't you? You called it forced moves. I could hope, but nothing is ever certain. So, you have my appreciation. It is difficult to express appreciation to someone with near-infinite power, but I have tried. Let me show you. 
she stepped forward to the base of my steel, shrouded by a mechanical device painted with contrasting alternate safety hashes. She touched a part of it with her foot, and it swung away with a chuff. The machine had newly engraved on the base two lines, one below in Volani runes, another above in Anglic characters. Below was the classic phrase, Ninker Saga. Above was his correspondence in Anglic. He serves the Empire. Present tense. We both serve the Empire in our own ways, Your Majesty. We do. I'm sorry that I do not have more time. I said that I understood. Xylem, this young lady you saw, will provide you whatever you need. I think you have about a month. Enjoy it, or use the time however you will. You have my undying gratitude. She barked out, Lady O, and the two stepped back into the shelter. It's time to go, and she was gone. I was humbled. When I was recruited, I had no visions of reward. What reward could there be to a dead man? Yet here was thoughtfulness, careful preparation, perfect execution. The cost, the value of six minutes alone in the presence of the Empress of the Universe, of her undivided attention and expressed gratitude, was simply uncountable. Xylem stood silent. After a pause, looking at the newly engraved words, she asked, What does that mean? There was no way to tell her, and I didn't try. 272-629, 4 Sector, 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. We visited the Imperial Bank. Its building had stood for centuries. The bank itself had existed for millennia. The Imperial in its name originated during the First Empire. My hopes had been that this bank would endure forever. I visited with a bank clerk, and he understood that my business was beyond his level of expertise. He personally escorted me to an obscure office on one of the higher floors. My business was not with management executives, but with a career clerk who made sure accounts were properly handled over the course of lifetimes. I will leave you with Mr. Acturo. He can handle what you need. I expressed my appreciation, left Xylem to wait in the outer office, and joined Acturo in the inner. I had not expected that the clerk would be the same one I had dealt with centuries before, and I recognized him as I entered, a squat figure draped in something that hid his legs and lower body. He seemed to drift rather than walk. There was no way he could recall me. I gave him an account code, keyed in the confirmation, and my information spread across a display. I remember when this account was established in 462. There have been several information deposits over the years, but they were all collected seven years ago. Yes, I want to collect anything that has arrived since. He made arrangements for them to be transferred to my comm. How much longer do you expect to hold this position? I asked him conversationally. He took the question as concern and indicated he expected to be here another forty years. I told him to make sure his replacement understood about this account. He said they were more like this one than one would expect. Spacers serving on frozen watch, long-term family trusts, generation skippers, waiters. MyCom dinged to signal it had received years' worth of account statements. I also asked for a demand card for access to my credit balance and told him to mark it cancelled after 30 days. 
As he passed it over, he mentioned, There's a note here that there are some object deposits in the vault. They should have been picked up last time. What are they? It looks like message capsules. He had them brought up from their secure niches many levels below. Acturo understood once he saw them. Last time, the depositor reviewed them, read them, but left them on deposit. I looked them over. A set of standard message containers in assorted colors and shapes, each labeled in a feminine hand, one, two, three, four, and seven, and dates on each from the 500s. Just these? Not two more? Five and six? No, sir, just the five. The receipts are quite clear. Each arrived separately. I had him check the vault again, but there was nothing. I had the encrypted contents transferred to my comm, but left the capsules themselves on deposit, along with a note that two appeared to be missing. Late that night I reviewed the capsules. I was at first confused because I knew no Anna Lagash and had little interest in her video diaries. It was probably a mistake, I thought, until about five minutes in. I almost stopped and discarded them all, and I'm glad that I did not. I had five of these memory chips, carefully labeled in a schoolteacher hand, one, two, three, four, and seven, delivered to my special account at the bank across the center of the fifth century. Indeed, five and six were missing. I skipped ahead to the end and hit synopsize. It was unusually short. We have returned. Jonathan's belief that the isolated communities of Bonnature were wave-resistant proved half-right, as I detailed in my previous report, and he has hopes that we can reduce the wave's effect on the Empire. Our return was otherwise uneventful, except for the Black Fleets. I have rents a sample for interment on his homeworld. Thereafter, the Threep want to venture rimward, and I would like to visit the homeworld of Anglic literature before I die so we will continue our travels. There was more to be harvested from a detailed viewing, but for now I paused and wondered about this woman with whom I had apparently spent a lifetime. End of the research project. Here, try these. I was surprised, my eyes still closed. Now open I saw I was accompanied to the stadium by someone vaguely familiar, but I didn't know his name. Vision protectors? Vision enhancers. Try them. They looked like standard lens eye protectors. At least they were fashionable. They did not, however, darken. The light level passing through remained the same. They did something different. As I looked out over the audience of stars, some of the people I saw glowed with a gentle light. Hmm. Some more than others. Some not at all. Who are they? The glowing ones. Look at your hand. It glowed steadily. You are first genetic magnitude. It was keyed to me. Your children glow at about three-quarters. Your grandchildren at about two-thirds. Your great-grandchildren at about half. The current generation is about a hundredth. What generation is it? As I looked out over the stadium. Twenty. Some sections glowed dimly, others more brightly, some not at all. Three to the twentieth? A billion? In the current generation, about that. Slightly more, actually. Some lines have ended. Others were very productive. It balances out. 
Over all, including the dead, perhaps half again that. But the current generation, there's a billion, but each has only a billionth of my genetics. At this generation, they've probably never heard of you, yes. You are one of billions of great-grandparents. Who could possibly keep track? I was listening with half an ear as I scanned the stadium seating, puzzling in my mind which world that clump of rightness was over there, and thinking of the millions of lives that had followed mine. What did they know? What did they think? I could ask. What a thought. I could ask. I picked a glow and made my way to it. A young man fixed intently on the field below. He watched an older woman dealing playfully, lovingly, with a man her own age. Excuse me? I touched his shoulder lightly. He was annoyed and answered curtly. Not now. He couldn't take his eyes off the woman. I insisted. I was accustomed to insisting. Tell me your name, your world. What did you do? He turned to me, and I could see the unhappiness in his face. I am Nagel Fassman, of Intel on Capital. I was a food preparer. He kept looking back at the woman. She told me she would love me forever. She didn't. He turned back. I woke up. 190-652, Core Sector, 0140, Reference, B100727-C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Repository. Bland had been on reference for 30 years, just over 200 hosts, back to back to back. If he had been one person, he would have earned two doctorates and be a distinguished professor at the university. Instead, his experience was united in one mind, but scattered through 200 bodies. Still, he had visited only half the levels in the towers. And he was starting to have a problem. The original engine wafer feasibility study chose an arbitrary cutoff of year 999. Who could ever plan any farther in the future than 600 years? Per wafer, one activation on average every five years, 150 total, maybe 200. Ultimately, there would be wafer failure. No one had said what a wafer failure would be. Insanity? Dementia? Memory deterioration? Catastrophic failure? Shorter activation time? Longer activation time? Shared host consciousness? Failure to evaporate? Failure to impose? Stupidity? All of the above? When would that happen? 194-652, Core Sector, 0140, Reference, B100727C, Vacuum World, Pre-Industrial, Data Repository. Awakenings had become routine. I went to sleep one night. I awoke in a new body, a new host, in some new rented room, and opened my eyes to see the familiar Angeline standing before me. This time she was seated, pale. Wan. Her shoulders slumped. Her beautiful arm stripes dim and fading. What's the matter? Tell me. She did not. She collapsed and slid inelegantly from her chair, even as I stepped toward her. I carried her to the bed, recognizing in the process that my current host was strong. Fortuitous. I fluttered about, responding with basic palliative techniques. Was she hot? Would a cool cloth help? Did she hurt? Would a pill help? A drink? A snack? 
What could I do? She drifted between wake and sleep, between lucid and foggy. She calmed and slept. Only then did I think to consult my tablet. I ran keywords and their chains of meaning. I made images and activated recognizers. I bought database accesses and evaluated them against each other. I thought I had the answer, but I could not be certain. I finally took the ultimate step. It was a risk, but everything is a risk. This was important to me. I ordered a medical skill wafer. I had it delivered. Some young man brought it to the room. I had to consult the locator to even see where we were. I met him at our door, accepted it after cursorily making sure the packaging was intact. It was already paid for, but I handed him a wad of notes in appreciation and sent him on his way. I removed my own wafer from this still new host and inserted the skill set, and I turned to see Angeline with new eyes. Where before I saw wan and slumped, I now saw significant pallor associated with muscle atrophy. Foggy responses became alternating processing dysfunction. Faded arm stripes became pigmentation decohesion. I also understood immediately what I was seeing. Clone deterioration. The end-of-life sequence built into specific synthetics. Angeline was dying. She would be dead before the end of the month. I could relieve her suffering. I could smooth the transition. But there would be a transition, and I could not stop it. I did what I could. When it was over, I realized that my researches were also over. I could plod from level to level in the sector towers, searching for answers, correlating leads with data, but my heart was no longer in my quest. Perhaps someday I would return here. Perhaps I would pursue a similar project on Vland. For now, I was ready for oblivion. I made my way across the city, found a random console, entered codes, and was, for the moment, Inspector Unipotentiary of the Quarantine Agency, with broad powers to visit and evaluate vessels of the Navy. I visited Iconel in orbit, not the one I remembered from Maurer, a new one continuing a proud and honored name. I mingled my wafer with its stockpile, synced so that the others also bore the fruits of my researches. Within decades, the memories would propagate throughout the many stockpiles on ships throughout the Empire. The next day, I randomly selected a destination far away from reference and rewarded my host for his service. Trilene I opened my eyes to the expanse of the stadium, strangely quiet, uncharacteristically empty. The empty seats extended to vanish in the mists in both directions. I expected to see Angeline here, and instead there was no one but me. I was overwhelmed with a wash of loneliness. 091-664, aboard BBF Intrepid, orbiting Zerushigar Sector, 0432, Trilene, D9A5987-5, High Population World, Industrial. Who here is senior? Commodore Tosio, sir. Not my expected answer. Who is my briefer? I am, Commander Escania. I opened my eyes to a spacious bridge with transpect views of a world looming below. I suppose that the variation from normal procedure and protocol is what prompted my feeling of looming. Two officers faced me. Incania, 
and someone else. To one side were three Marines. Tell me what's going on. This looming world, Trilene, lay in the thumb of the Great Rift. Off the main routes, ignored by all but the tramp freighters and independent merchants. Its wild orbital swings made life a challenge for both the native intelligent life, some sort of land squid, and the humans who had lived here for thirty centuries. Data superimposed on the transpects gave me basic information. D9A5987-5 Large enough that gravity would be a trial for most Imperials. The local humans had long ago adapted. The exotic atmosphere was breathable, for churning with jet streams, random dust storms, and spontaneous wind bursts. Oceans covered about half the world. There were billions of people. The annotation said 3.1 billions. Government was theoretically a merit-based bureaucracy. Many local units with a centralized reporting system. A reasonable rule of law with moderate safeguards for personal actions provided the government was not challenged. Local technology emphasized renewable resources and analog devices, probably because there were no resources worth anything in trade for higher imperial tech. Incania was reasonably proficient in presenting the basic situation. The big eastern continent was mostly human. The small western continent was mostly the land squid. They called themselves Vark, which seemed to be both singular and plural. Praline had just emerged from a 400-standard-year apt-stellar winter and was now in a 50-year peristellar summer. About a year ago, the Wests, both Vark and human, strangely enough, resisted some government program to produce and stockpile resources for the next winter. Notations, strokes, and false color on the transpects showed force strengths and attitudes for each side superimposed in real time on the world we saw looming through the vision ports. The East insisted on compliance. The West resisted. The East instructed government agencies to take specific actions. The West instructed them to desist. East sent in troops. West countered. Some battles were fought. The East engaged several contract battalions to support their local land war. After the first few battles, there was some confusion about payment, and the mercenaries switched sides. At that point, the local noble asked for help from the Navy. Apparently his cousin was in the chain of command. This squadron of six 100,000-ton Intrepid-class dreadnoughts showed up, and after a brief evaluation, the computer ordered activation of a wafer general, Trevor. He had the squadron's 2999th Lift Infantry Regiment, with six battalions, carried one for ship. Over the past three weeks, Trevor had directed a military campaign using this regiment of Star Marines. Theoretically, these Tech 13 troops with standard weapons were eight orders of magnitude stronger than the local militias. Theoretically, General Trevor should have prevailed two weeks ago. The West had killed half, half the Marines, and captured the rest, including General Trevor. When the wafer general failed, my activation was triggered. I turned to the Marine lieutenant standing next to me. Do you understand Edict 97? Absolutely, sir. I am the successor to General Trevor. Do you understand? Absolutely, sir. Let's get started. Get me a flight jacket. Imperial sunburst on the back. Size standard. The lieutenant looked funny, and I looked down at myself. What, large? Yes, sir, I think that would be better. What's my name? 
York Mender Luton, sir. My name on the back. A breastplate. Two front arms, non-lethal and lethal. Yes, sir. He motioned to one of his companions, who ran off. I turned to Escania and quizzed him on some situation details. We were on the flagship Intrepid. Three others, courageous, audacious, and dauntless, were in orbit with us. Two more, Pluck and Stout, were stationed beyond the outer moon. All the Marines had been deployed, except for a reserve battalion still on Courageous. The Commodore, technically a ship captain, his not-quite-admiral rank marked him in charge of the squadron, was engaged in communications with the Wests, negotiating a prisoner transfer. He had instructed my activation and briefing, and we would meet as soon as he was done. I checked some additional facts while we waited, updating my own understanding of the Empire. An iris valve hissed, and Commodore Sir Edda Toshio, Baron Rylanor, entered, followed by three staff. Escania made introductions. The Commodore and I had complementary objectives. He wanted resolution to the problem. I needed clarification of my authority. After the obligatory amenities, we got down to business. What is the status of General Trevor? He is one of the West's prisoners. They have agreed to transfer him to us under a parole. Then he is no longer in command? Does he know that? Yes. No. That is, your activation supplants his. I have not yet communicated with him. When is he coming back? The shuttles will arrive in six hours. Trevor and about a hundred wounded. That is all they would agree to. An exchange? No, a gesture. We don't have any captives to exchange. And your plan? All of this is a mess. Our options are few. I think we allow local government to balkanize. It is de facto anyway. Negotiate return of the rest of the Marines, the mercenaries as well if we can, then interdict the world and let them stew. I agree. He had the situation well in hand, except that Trevor could make problems if he didn't agree. I knew Peter and how he thought. He did not like to lose. I gave instructions that Trevor and the wounded be isolated upon arrival. Simple quarantine precautions. One last question. Who sits on the Eurydium throne? The Empress Margaret. She ascended last year. Then I went to visit Courageous. The ship's boat carried me across the gulf to Intrepid's sister, a similar round-ended cylinder 300 meters long and 100 meters across, studded with point-defense turrets, punctuated with cargo ports and missile launch tubes. Vast areas were colored or textured with sensor and communicator arrays. Spectacularly marked amidships was the 21-raid sunburst that symbolized the power and authority of the greatest interstellar empire there ever was. I always felt a glow of pride when I saw it. The boat nosed into a small port near one end. I was welcomed by the ship's captain and the Marine Reserve Battalion Force Commander. I had a plan. As anxious as I was to get started, Rule 6 says find out more information, and Rule 3 says build your team. I confirmed that they were my team, that the captain of the Courageous understood that I was in charge, that the Force Commander understood that I would be giving orders. I was pleased. After nearly 400 years, the Navy and the Marines were well-trained and well aware of how things were supposed to work. As a rough approximation, military tech levels are orders of magnitude. 
Trilene's military, or land war, or militia, or whatever they called themselves, was Tech-5. Probably they had simple manually operated rifles and gravity arc artillery. They weren't super soldiers. They weren't on average smarter or more dexterous. Maybe they were a bit stronger, or in the local gravity our troops were a bit weaker. But our Marines had energy-spewing plasma rifles, battlefield information systems, armored vehicles that could fly. Ten of our soldiers were worth a billion of theirs. Perhaps not a billion, but there was no way that they could stand up against Imperial technology. They had been betrayed. That was the only possible explanation. Force Commander Hirono was a clone. He looked twenty, but had the experience of twice as many years. This particular unit was the 5th of the 2999th, a lift cavalry squadron with three troops of a dozen flying armored vehicles each. His captains were a truly eclectic mix, a Varger named Kne, an Aslan named Tau, and a strange foreped named Hippanida. I could see why they were in reserve. Eclecticity did not perform well on the battlefield, where commanders strive for homogeneity in true performance. They would have to do. I said that I was about the Empress's business, excused the ship captain, and took the Marines to a conference room. Please, all of you, be seated. Rule 4, Rule 1, leading to Rule 3. I am Agent Luton, operating under Imperial Edict 97. Force Commander, is that clear? Yes, Agent. We all reviewed the edict and the regulations when General Trevor was activated. Not that we hadn't done the training already. My officers are extremely competent. Good. Thank you. Is it clear to you that I supersede General Trevor? Not until you speak the words, sir. Then I will be clear. I am the Empress Agent, and I speak with her voice. There is none with authority greater than mine, save the Empress herself. Yes, sir. Let's hear it from your captains as well. The chorus of yes, sirs followed immediately. Tell me who is side-qualified, Marine or Navy. I sent one of the captains off on that mission. I started on my plan. The Marines were attentive and made positive contributions to several points. Essentially, we would keep the repatriated wounded and General Trevor separated while a side-trained officer eavesdropped. It should be easy to identify one of them as perfidious or can out who someone thought was the traitor. Failing that, we could do deeper interrogations, with drugs if necessary. I really didn't care about further negotiation. We would interdict this world in the next several days anyway. I wanted a strike that would kill whoever thought it was acceptable to resist imperial power. I think that's rule two. I expected that we would need this reserve marine battalion to make the strike, as well as help rescue the marines below. Someone brought us a meal, and we ate as we planned. I lost track of the time. The three cutters, 50-ton multi-purpose craft, carried about 30 repatriates each to Intrepid. The Marines were a sorry lot. Some were truly battle casualties, but others showed bruises and lumps that betrayed concerted beatings. The observant medics noted layers of color indicating repeated blows over time. Mature bruises, spotted blood, fresh bruises, fresh blood. The latest injuries were no more than a few hours old. Several in each load were actually missing hands. Word spread quickly through the ship. The reaction was varied, but truly emotional. Sympathy, concern, pity, anger, 
a desire for revenge. The wounded were quickly processed through the clinic and put up in a temporary barracks. About a fifth were from Intrepid's own Marine Battalion, and they were returned to their own bunks to be nursed and coddled by the comrades still on the ship. General Trevor was directed to the recuperation barracks, but instead proceeded directly to the bridge, followed by his security detail. There was a confrontation with the Commodore, but he was ultimately assigned a console to monitor operations. He set about reviewing the data feeds and sensor reports as they came in. Aboard Courageous, I interviewed three Psy-trained officers. One was a touchy-feely empath who could generally sense emotions. The other two could actually hear thoughts. I took all three anyway and briefed them on the interrogation plan, including what I specifically wanted to know. 092-664, aboard BPF Intrepid, orbiting Zerushigar Sector 0432, Trilene, D9A59875, High Population World, Industrial. Our cutter nosed into the dock with a clang of metal that resounded through the small craft. I was intent on beginning interrogations. Tell Bridge that we are proceeding directly to the isolation ward. Get the location from Iskania. No matter where, it would be a walk of no more than ten minutes. The Marine lieutenant voiced an eye agent and tapped at his com. We all ducked through the connecting iris valve to the sally port. The spacers securing our craft were diligent, but did not interact with us. Bridge says there is a change. They want you up there first. He knew the way, and we turned left instead of right at the next branch. I continued to talk to the two telepaths. I was fascinated by their ability to read thoughts, while repulsed with the idea that they could read mine. Their descriptions made it clear that each reading was a discreet, deliberate act. They didn't just look in people's minds continuously. The empath interrupted, Agent, and waited before he more forcefully interrupted, Agent, what? I was intent on formulating triggering questions for the interrogations. Empath works differently. So? I knew that. I found I was impatient. Perhaps this host had a different hormonal balance than I was used to. I feel emotions around me constantly. They flow. I don't look at one person and he stood still, forcing all of us to do the same. Try to feel their emotions. They swirl around me. Was this fellow just being narcissistic to bring up his special ability here? We didn't need that. The telepaths would be more focused. They would get real answers. I was dismissive. Good for you. I'll keep that in mind if I need an emotional sweep. His delay made me seriously consider Rule 2. Agent, you need to understand how my talent works. He now walked up to me, touched my shoulder, moved his mouth close to my ear, and whispered, We are walking through a fog of West loyalty. My fingers clicked in battle language. The Marines responded instantly. They all about-faced, with one remaining at our new rear and another stepping past us to start retracing our path, all now with front arms drawn. This startled the Psy officers, but then again they were not actively reading our minds. The empath knew what was happening. At my finger's instruction, the lieutenant pushed open a divider and reached into a compartment for its occupant. His face was bloodied, a few bruises around his mouth just turning blue. I poked one of the telepaths and asked, what's he thinking? 
The mind-reading trick took longer than I wanted it to, but after some count of seconds, he's thinking, I can't let the Xenos know about us. We're the Xenos, Agent. The empath interjected, he's bleeding the West loyalty. Kill him. A Marine broke his neck. Back to the cutter. My fingers twitched ultimate priority. I carried two front arms in sleeves bolted to my chest plate, more as a symbol of authority than to ever actually be used. I actually drew my lethal option. The Marines, I didn't even know their names, did everything I expected. They hustled all of us the sixty meters of quarter back to the docking port, into the cutter, and cut us away in less than four minutes leaving a trail of dead bodies behind us. They killed everyone we met, spacers, naval officers, even fellow Marines that they probably knew. I wondered briefly if I should have chosen penultimate priority and then dismissed the thought. The lieutenant calmed courageous with an alert. Our cutter's communicator blared demands from Intrepid that we return or be shot. Halfway across, a coded signal neutered our craft and it went dead. Minutes later, we slammed into our own ship's hull. One of the telepaths was improperly secured and died in the impact. Utility pods deployed immediately. It was faster to move the wrecked cutter onto a hangar deck than rescue in place. When they popped the hatch, my ears ached under the pressure. S&R swarmed over the ship, checking for injuries, moving us into a side chamber. Courageous captain met us and demanded to know what was afoot. I silenced him with a hand wave. I turned to the surviving telepath. Tell me your impression of what just happened. He hesitated, transforming nonverbal impressions to words. That spacer was not human. He wasn't. He was, but he wasn't. The thoughts didn't flow. They stuttered. They threw a filter or a sensor. I turned to the empath. What about you? Tell me your impressions. Usually there's a chaos of low-level emotions around me. Like, dislike, sad, happy, anxious, distracted, all sorts. I've learned to ignore them. Over there, it was none of that. Just loyalty. More than loyalty. Purpose. United purpose. Our gravball team pushing toward the goal doesn't have that level of united purpose, and we won the ship's prize last season. Captain, Intrepid has gone over to the Wests. We must take... Plaxons sounded and lights blinked. The console screens in the chamber showed alert crawlers across their bases, and auxiliary displays flashed numbers and coded symbols. Adjourned to the bridge. The hull rang with impacts. The captain ran ahead. I told the empath, Stay with me. Tell me what you feel. What? West loyalty? I understand what you want, Agent. Yes. To the Psy officer, Can you read them from here? No, sir. Maybe someone can, but I need to see whoever I'm reading. You stay with me, too. The bridge was controlled chaos. Status was jumping from orbital standby to battle stations in one leap. Normally, it would be a smooth stage progression. Sensops followed procedures and shouted out exceptional readings. Each of the impacts had been in a boarding craft aimed at a hangar bay or cargo hold doors. There was an active fight at hangar bay 3. Sensors were being raked with petabytes of data, viruses, trojans, phages, worms, and propaganda, and overload bursts. Coded comm channels were trying to take over or shut down vital ship functions. Intrepid was enveloped in a preemptive cloud of anti-beam sand crystals.
the battle commander gave orders for the same from Corrodigus. Intrepid is yawing to bear. Four minutes. Evade against the bearing, as if a hundred thousand ton capital ship could outpace thirty degrees of yaw. It might gain us a minute. Maze on screen up. Anti-missile turrets active. They're powering up. Are we ready? The spinal mount crew made its reports. Target identified. Power at standard. Firing solution achieved. The captain looked at me. I nodded. Maze on screen down. Fire. Nothing happened. The computer is blocking it. I don't show a virus, but one could have gotten through. No, there's no intrusion. It's just blocking it. Fix it. Wait, here's the issue. We're not allowed to fire on the flagship. They apparently are allowed to fire on us. I understood. An anti-mutiny measure. I leaned into a console operator. His screen gave the date. 092-664. I did some mental math. Calculate 775 to the 103rd. Tell me the first ten digits. He touched and manipulated an auxiliary screen. It took forever. Then the numbers popped up. Enter that override code. The captain had stepped over to my side. Intrepid is at standard power. They have lock. The background flashed green. The captain said, fire. Their burst of strange particles reached us just before we fired. Carefully chosen to ignore most matter. Carefully timed to degrade into energetic bursts once they had passed through our armor. They rocked our interior. I felt vibrations through my feet. Visuals and audibles across the bridge signaled damage. I heard a comment that our jump drives were shredded. If we didn't win this battle, that would be the least of our worries. Maze on screen up. In the mirror image of us, our particles hit intrepid. Their maneuver drives are out. I wished it had been their main gun. There was a lull. Agent, excuse me. It was the empath again. Yes? Tell me your name. I'm Sub-Lieutenant Tliakernard, Agent. A Joe name. That made sense. Rule 5, now that I thought of it. Record this. You are promoted lieutenant. The Empress appreciates your service. I thank you, sir. I countered with some niceties. Then he continued. You know there was also a dead body in that compartment. The one with the first encounter. A tripod. I felt, you know, empathy felt that the spacer killed it. I understood. I stepped to the captain. We're dealing with a meme. Agent? How so? Given our limited data set, here's the process. A carrier approaches a target and expresses the meme phrase, some compelling subliminal statement that imposes group loyalty, followed by an execution stimulus, a few blows to the face. This doesn't make a lot of sense. You can't tell someone to be loyal and expect it to take. Actually, you can. It just takes a complex of reinforced statements over a long enough period of time. Think about the last haunting song you couldn't get out of your head. It took root in your brain after just one hearing. The right combination of words or sounds plus what? Subliminals? Pheromones? Followed by a few blows with pain and an adrenaline rush? I wonder who first discovered this process. Some professor? Some medic? Some mystic? Who works on humans? Apparently on the land squids, too. Does it work on other sofants? Barger? Aslan? Dandelions? Now Lieutenant Chilakunard added, Does it work remotely? Through an audiovisual channel? Or a multisensory channel? 
Excellent. Yes. Embargo all communications with Intrepid and with the world below. Make it absolute. Yes, Agent. And find us a replacement for the dead Psy officer. We need answers. With Intrepid against us, I declared courageous flag, and command of the squadron fell to its captain. Now Commodore Eno Duralte, a tall five-ped with eyes on stalks, was in this position because his three human seniors were dead. Even in the cosmopolitan imperium, most senior positions are held by humans. This naval officer, who had topped out at captain, now had a realistic opportunity to be admiral, if and only if this current assignment ended well. It was committed to success. On the bridge of the courageous, all of us, and Oderalte and his primary staff, Lieutenant Tilarkanad, two other Psy officers, and the inevitable Marines, watched as the thumb-sized slug writhed and squirmed in his transpect cage. Lieutenant Tilarkanad narrated our final hypothesis. We took this out of one of the attackers. It's the larval stage of an additional native intelligent life on Trilene. It's a symbiont. We're not clear if this is parasitism or mutualism or something else. It can invade land squids and humans. We're not clear if it can affect others. But it's not really intelligent. It appears to be totally instinctual. It acquires its intelligence from its host. An egg makes its way to the digestive tract, where it hatches into a dozen of these larvae. One attaches itself to the nervous system. The others lie in wait. At the right opportunity, the host confronts a new host, regurgitates one larva, and then deposits it in the mouth of the new host. This is not a pretty process. It's by force, accompanied by punches and blows as necessary. That explains the face wounds and bruises. Each host goes about its ordinary business, but with complete loyalty to the cause, which is dissemination of the species. Until recently, the cause was world-centered and focused on the land squids. The jump to human produced an awareness of the greater universe. Even here I can feel the fog of loyalty to its instinctual cause. I decided on our action. Freeze and seal this specimen. Commodore, elevate the plan from quarantine to disinfect. No communications to or from the world. We'll begin a scrub immediately. 120-664. Aboard BBF Courageous, orbiting Zerushagar Sector, 0432 Trilene D9A59875 High Population World Industrial The operation was far enough along that it could continue without me. This time the work had been challenging and fatiguing. The locals had actively fought our scrubbing. They hastily converted utility craft to anti-ship missiles loaded with atomics. Every single ship they had boosted to orbit on ram courses. No, two of them tried to sneak off on a tangent. They were no match for intrepid-class dreadnoughts. Pockets of locals built shelters, shield tunnels, and refuges from our bombardments. We had to devote special attention to their destruction. This scrubbing would continue for a year or more. Our squadron picked a neighboring world and established a temporary base, a place where ships could refuel and spacers could walk more than a hundred strides without turning. Future travelers would find this new main world on the charts, with Trilene demoted to a forbidden barren world with a poisonous atmosphere and orbiting sentries blaring, stay away, across all communication bands. 
I exercised my own authority and named the New World Leuton. Rule 5. Margaret won. Long, long ago, the masters of Onan made a gift of their world to the person of the emperor. It was an old, used-up world. The decision to colonize it some 5,000 years before had been judged by time as less than optimal. Its obvious resources were early stripped away. Its tainted atmosphere burdened citizens' daily life. Its similarly tainted oceans harbored inedible fish and a ubiquitous scum that colored beaches a strange purple-green. Its few cities were sunless warrens of subsurface tunnels and tubes, fed filtered warmed air that somehow still retained the scent of the outside. The masters of Onan gladly packed up their few portable belongings and decamped to a newer, more pleasant world on the edge of the Great Rift, happy to leave behind generations of toil, decline, and poverty. Onan's true appeal was location a mere parsec from the most important world in the empire, yet off the main travel routes, isolated yet nearby, open yet secure. Petty funds from the emperor's accounts rebuilt the master's palace into a retreat from the cares and responsibilities of government. Over time, tunnels were rehabbed and portions of the city rebuilt to house servants and caretakers and the inevitable bureaucrats. Emperor after emperor, Empress after Empress, even Regent after Regent, turned to Onan as a retreat from the demands of the galaxy. The Navy patrols the system and shoes or shoots away chance intruders. The once modern starport has gone to ruin. The few yachts and shuttles that visit settle onto the old city plaza just outside the ceremonial gate to the palace. The city center, where once lived a million people, was now a thatch of native purple obscuring the once-upon-a-time road network and decaying buildings. Processor towers that once billowed vapor into the air now cast physical palls on the countryside. Onan was being allowed to reclaim most of the evidence of civilization's intrusions. 102-736, Core Sector 2017, Onan, E-576-321-7, Low Population World, Imperial Reserve. The Empress Margaret had found in her schedule a span of dates, carefully labeled in the official diaries as consultations and personal time. She was due back on capital in three weeks. For the first few days, shuttles brought officials and supplicants whose causes were worth a journey of a week each way just for the chance to speak to her. She granted some boons. She denied others. At last, she had a block of three days clear. I awoke to a gentle babble of running water. The momentary disorientation unbalanced me, and I steadied myself, touching some piece of furniture. I started to speak, who, with the here is senior unspoken. I was interrupted. Welcome, Jonathan, in a soft feminine voice a few meters away. I opened my eyes. There was a fashionable woman seated on a raised platform, flanked by footpersons, their livery trimmed in the yellow of the imperial family. There was an artificial brook at the far side of the large room. No one called me by my name. Many didn't even know it. This had happened to me only twice before. Thank you. Forgive me, but we have not met. Beside the chair stood a gray newt, 
you address the Empress Margaret. I am humbled to be in your presence. What else should I say? I bided my time, then spoke again. How may I serve you? Adapa, would you explain? Before we begin, may I orient myself? Certainly. Where are we? We are in the Empress' personal quarters, in the Imperial Retreat on Onan, about a parsec from capital. And who am I? Your host is the Marcus Erulan. He volunteered for the task. I am the Viscountess Adapa, confidential advisor to the Empress. She pronounced her title as it was spelled. As she spoke, I noticed my host's characteristic. Body fur rather than hair. Short stature, but muscular arms. Swear it. I had not been a swear it before. And the date? Third day, 102, in the year of the Imperium, 736. The time is 1040. Today was the 400th anniversary of my death. Adapa, you may begin. The newt made a slight gesture, and the footpersons quietly left. As she began the presentation, I mused that this situation, so unlike many others, was yet the same. A fully informed briefer, a power figure turning to me to make a decision, assets waiting to be used. Image 1. The threat assessment was extreme, over 12. In my experience, a star exploding in the next half year was a 10. Image 2. The Geony, one of about 40 human subspecies within the imperial borders. Their homeworld was Shiwani, strongly suppressed by the Valani during the First Empire, sided with the Solomani and rewarded with self-government when the First Empire fell, regressed during the Long Night, and after some conflict, absorbed by the Third Imperium. Image 3. Star charts and route maps. Arrows and color-coded areas. I remembered that during my lifetime, we expanded our contacts and trade with the Solomani, basically the many colonies and settled worlds of Terra. Slowly, over the next 300 years, the Imperium has absorbed about half of them, including Terra itself. But when Margaret's father married Antiyama, the power balance shifted to the Valani. Someone convinced Margaret to focus on the coreward regions of the Empire to grant the Solomani Rim their own autonomous region. Stop, please. Adapa paused. When did the Empress ascend the throne? 688, when Shakirov died. She was four. There was a regency council until she turned twenty in 704. And when was the Soleimani Autonomous Region established? 704. There was a story here, but it was not important for the moment. Please continue. Image 4. This was fine print legalese about proxies. Given the need for nobles to be at their fiefs, often months distant from capital, they sold, more properly they rented or leased, their votes in the moot to the leader of some faction or other. In the past few years, the GNE were using some legalese tricks to buy up not the whole proxy, but just specific potential votes for a GNE autonomous region. Image 5. Late this year, as the mood adjourns, the proxies will activate and the GAR will be approved. If that works, others, the Swerat, the Vagans, perhaps the Darmine, will clamor for the same treatment. Within ten years, the Imperium will be a patchwork of autonomous regions instead of an empire. Image 6. 
I see now the previous images had been on a slight gray tint background. This one was pure white. That was a nice touch. I checked for a minute, but I could not feel any subliminals to reinforce it. Courses of action are restricted. For various reasons, the proxies cannot be abrogated. The vote cannot be delayed. The fate of the Imperium hung in the balance. Desperate measures were necessary. The plan was already in motion. In the normal course of events, a fleet on maneuvers would happen upon Shiwani. A chance inspection would fortuitously detect a recurrence of Plague Alpha, the weaponized virulence from the ancient war. The danger was to 4,000 systems within 60 parsecs, to trillions of sophants, to the center of the empire, capital itself. They would activate a quarantine agent to handle the situation. The death of the GNE homeworld would be 50 billion at most. Many would mourn their loss, but many would also sleep easier. I was to be that agent. I shifted to decider mode. Show me this star map. Mark our location. Mark the location of Shiwani. How far is that? Fifty-seven parsecs. Ten jumps at six. Under twelve weeks, probably eighty days, possibly less. We have a jump six here. The Crix, a dagger-class corvette, waiting in orbit. What other resources in this system? An information graphic on an auxiliary popped up. Four cruisers patrol this system in the gas giant. They allow refueling but restrict approaches to this world. Two monitors in orbit, mostly ceremonial, plus Likonir. I looked at Adapa with a question. It's a battle cruiser. It accompanied us here when we arrived last week. When we leave, it will depart on a long-term patrol to the Spinward Marches. The Imperial Yacht also in orbit. A few scattered supply ships entering and leaving the system. What's that one? I pointed to a smaller ship on the census. A detached duty scout. I haven't heard of that before. The Empress created a program some 35 years ago. We give selected veterans of the scout service obsolete ships on long-term loan. They wander the star lanes making random reports on what they see. We have essentially shifted them to piecework. It's cheaper than the way we were doing it before. I see. Everything is ultimately driven by economics. What is the status of this roving fleet? From Massilia Sector. Six squadrons on a long-term patrol have coded orders to assemble in the Shuani system 100 days from now, 203. My mind was still processing the plan. The presentation was certainly comprehensive. The planning superb, as was to be expected at the highest levels of the most powerful government in charted space. I knew what they expected, and I knew what had to be done. I decided. I turned to the Empress. I understand. Shall we begin? She nodded. How much of the process do you wish to monitor? May I suggest that we give you a progress report tomorrow evening? We'll plan on that, then. You are dismissed. Leaving the room, I turned to the newt. I want to visit Likonair. Call us a shuttle. She turned to her communicator and tapped it several times. We are to meet it at the ceremonial gate. She apparently knew what that meant, and I followed. We walked down long, ornate corridors, past half-empty offices and various meeting rooms. One had its door open. What is this office? I believe it's scheduling. I stepped in the door to find several rows of consoles, each with a person hunched over an input display. They were oblivious to our entry. 
I hit a flat surface with my palm, slap, slap, and heads turned. Who has a naval commission, including reservists? Stand up. Five did. The chubby young lady in the corner was a naval reservist, as was a greenish foreped. The other three were human males. You five come with us. I pointed to the nearest, who remained seated. Note the names of these five. The Empress has need of their service, and they have been activated. Please make the necessary notifications. He started to protest, and his neighbor rose and said, We will do so, Your Grace. Yes, I was a Marquis. The ceremonial gate to the palace is an immense hall with vaulted ceilings and transparent colored upper panels. Sunbeams lanced through the air. Our footsteps echoed as we walked. Ahead were massive doors to the outside plaza beyond. We passed a stand of colorful fabric banners with various symbols. The local Onan world emblem, the Imperial Navy crest, several of the quasi-official megacorporate logos, the Imperial family crest. All were arranged on the flanks of the Imperial banner itself, the many-rayed sunburst in black on a field of yellow. I touched one of our party randomly and said, Bring that Imperial banner with us. She struggled to remove it from its staff and then raced to catch up. Adapa took us not to the tall central doors, but to a small airlock set into the wall. We cycled through. The air will stink, but it's only a moment's dash. Just don't breathe too deeply. If the Empress had been with us, the tall doors would have been opened, the shuttle brought inside, clean air cycled in. We were on a tighter schedule. By the time we arrived, the shuttle was indeed waiting, its hull steaming from the rapid transit through atmosphere. We boarded and were swiftly carried into orbit. On the flight up, I conversed cursorily with my five conscripts, asking their names, their backgrounds and skill sets, and providing the briefest of explanations for our actions. Rule 3. I told the one with the flag to make sure it was folded according to regulation. The Navy expected obedience from its officers. They knew better than to fuss. After I moved away, they talked amongst themselves. 102-736. Aboard B.F. Lickenier in orbit above, Core Sector 2017, Onan, E-576321-7, Low Population World, Imperial Reserve. On the hangar deck of the Lickenier, Marine Security greeted us with polite formality. The officer of the deck was momentarily flustered at our abrupt arrival, but recovered quickly. I spoke. Please ask the captain to meet us here in twenty minutes. We are about the Empress business. Such code words prompted quick action and established our relative positions in the hierarchy. No one dared use them without good reason. The Marine Sergeant for Security had heard us, and I now turned to him. Take us to the IT vault. It helped that I was the Marquis Irulan, and that my companion was the Lady Adapa. I found it amazing that, time after time, the security of quarantine wafers was entrusted to some new ensign who barely knew how the Navy worked. It was true here as well. We were escorted deep into the bowels of the Lucanier, past the drive compartments and maker shops to the auxiliary bridge. Tucked behind the backup computer compartment was a secure anteroom leading to the vault door guarded by an ensign more comfortable with computers than with people. He looked up. Ensign, show us the quarantine wafers. He had at least some concept of security and started to protest, but the sergeant nodded to him that he should comply. He showed us the packages. 
Five of each, although only four deciders, I already had the fifth. That confirmed in my mind that this was where they acquired my current wafer. Where's the synchronizer? He pointed to a small device in the corner. I handed over my wafer along with its four companions and told him to synchronize the lot. They were just brought up to date last week. Do it again. It took but a few minutes. As he did, I gathered up all of them, the warlords, admirals, advisors, negotiators, and my deciders, and put them in my pocket. I pocketed the synchronizer as well. Who has wafer jacks? Five hands raised, including the marine. That was lucky. I pointed to the males. You four stay. The rest of you step outside. Take out your identity cards. Hold them in front of you. I distributed deciders. Now each of you take a wafer and insert it. I reopened the vault door and we rejoined the others. On the hangar deck again, we were met as cordially as could be expected by Lickenair's captain. Flanked by a lieutenant, she introduced as the Cricks, and a disheveled fellow, she said, was the Scout. I began immediately and without pleasantries. They were officers in Imperial service. They were supposed to do as they were told, especially when one of the Empress counselors spoke. Captain? I stopped. Rule three. The Empress has given me a mission. She extends her compliments to you and asks that you assist me. The definition of asks, in this case, we both understood to be requires. I want, I pointed, this Marine Sergeant to go down to the palace. He has his instructions. Give him what he needs. I want, I turned to the nearest of the reservists and pointed randomly. He said his name. Lieutenant Ginsa appointed captain of the Cricks. Transfer his current captain to your command. I mean neither criticism nor condemnation. This is merely the whim of the Empress. I turned to the scout, who was watching with interest. He rarely interacted at this level of command. I am the Marquis Irulan, advisor to the Empress. Hi, I'm Jorn Cobalt, thirty years a scout and who knows how many yet to come. I'm pleased to meet you, Jorn. Tell me about your ship. This one? Technically, it's the IISS Hanlon. I've had her six years now. I finally have her running like she should. Yes, the Empress Detached Duty Program seems to be working nicely. Well, I sure appreciate it, yes. Jorn, now is one of those times when you repay us for the confidence we have placed in you. I want you to carry, and I pointed to the second reservist, who said his name, Lieutenant Commander Ringquest to Capitol tonight. He will then give you additional instructions. I turned back to the captain. Captain, your orders have been accelerated. You are to carry, I pointed again to a reservist and heard his name, Lieutenant Damala to Vland, and then continue on your itinerary to the Spinward Marches. Please confer with him about your schedule. This is the Empress' specific wish. I met with the foreped and the reservist with the flag. Actually, I made them wait while I prepared the materials they would need a short recorded memo, a supplementary piece of paper. Then I addressed them both. She was Lieutenant Commander Phyllis Kuslis Shorn, a reservist. It was Lieutenant Kavax, from some world over in Delphi. She was still holding the flag, and I took it into my own hands. The Empress herself desires that you two convey a message to the Duke of Shiwani. It consists of three parts. Upon meeting with the Massilia fleet, you two are to meet with the commanding officer of the naval forces and give him this message ship and this wafer. 
I handed it both. You are then to travel immediately to the Shiwani world surface and meet with the Duke. You, Lieutenant Kavax, are to present him personally with this flag. Avoid all pleasantries. Commander, you should immediately convey to the Duke this message. Burn it into your heart. The Empress conveys her respect to the GNE as members of the Empire. Salute as appropriate and withdraw. Hanlon left within an hour. Crix left within two. By that time, I was transferring back to Onan's surface in a shuttle. Margaret II The wind whistled in my ears, and I shivered with a blast of chill. I opened my eyes to the expanse of the stadium. In the distance I could see clumps of audience, but nearby no one. Beyond the railing lay a barren world. I knew in my mind that it was one I had scrubbed, but I did not immediately recognize it. I saw winds blowing radioactive dust across crumbling ruins and vegetation that would never decay. To my left, half a section away, stood a tall man strikingly red-headed. Even from the distance, I now recognized two people, my former boss, Lord Ankuga, he who had recruited me, and with him a shorter companion, a half-familiar face, which resolved in my mind into my personal physician. Why, I thought, would those two, of all the people I had known in my former life, be standing together watching the affairs of the universe? There was a logical conclusion, and I made it. Rational thought fled as I moved toward them, and as I did, the doctor literally cowered, affirming the truth of my conjecture. It seemed like forever getting there, but I finally stood face to face, screaming my fury. The doctor was on his knees, covering his head with protective arms, but Ankuga stood impassive, perhaps knowing that here he could not be harmed, perhaps accepting my blasts of emotion as well deserved. Part of my mind remained irrational, separate even as the other part vented rage. His calm infuriated me, and I schemed even as I screamed. I could hunt down his descendants. I could snuff out entire bloodlines. I could destroy fortunes, calmly, patiently. His blood would dry up and his fiefs would lie fallow. My tirade was an incoherent attempt to express myself with meanings word-rooted in garbage and chaos, curses and offenses against convention. Ultimately, words failed me and I grew fatigued. I was never able to consciously produce pressured speech or unending streams of consciousness. When I paused, he extended his hand to my shoulder. Jonathan. Somehow I did not wince at the touch. Jonathan, I understand your rage. How could he? How could he possibly? Yet I wanted him to understand. We stand here and watch helplessly what happens below. We can observe and enjoy the triumphs, but we also have to see the pain and the suffering, and there is nothing we can do. Nothing. Think. Reason over emotion. This part of the stadium is empty because of you. But except for what you have done, that part, he gestured, would also be empty, over there and over there and over there. Imagine instead that you had not acted. This entire side would be empty, not just this small part. I had to admit the truth that he spoke. I had stayed sane over the centuries because I knew that the balance in what I did tilted toward life. He continued, Can the dead of that world truly rage at you, knowing for every one of them you killed, Ten or a hundred or a thousand still live? As I nodded in acquiescence, he continued, 
Is what I did so different than what you do? Then I woke up. 102-736, aboard BF Lickenair, in orbit above Core Sector 2017, Onan, E-576-321-7, Low Population World, Imperial Reserve. I was surprised at how short the Marquis Irulan was. I towered over him. He led us without any ceremony out of the vault and through passages that I clearly remembered to the hangar deck. I looked again at my identity card. Lieutenant Anya Ginsa. I wondered how that was pronounced. On the hangar deck, there were brief introductions, and the Marquis began abruptly. Captain, I want... He turned and pointed to me. I said my rank and name. He continued. Lieutenant Ginsa appointed captain of the Cricks. Transfer its current captain to your command. I mean neither criticism nor condemnation. This is merely the whim of the Empress. My attention turned to the soon-to-be former captain of Cricks, his face stone. After a few more minutes, the Marquis ended the conversation. I stepped next to my predecessor, extended my hand, and forced the issue. Lieutenant Ginsa, his hesitation was but a split second, and then he touched mine. Lieutenant Matteo Betna, what is going on? I am unsure myself. Take me to the ship, and I will tell you what I know. In a few hours, he would not matter. Captain Betna, no matter his rank, we called him captain on his ship, conveyed the change of command to the crew. I expressed appreciation and regret and dismissed him. I immediately delegated in-system control to the pilot and told him to depart as soon as possible for the jump point. We left within two hours. I spoke with the astrogator, a newly promoted sub-lieutenant. Our destination is Shiwani, as soon as possible. At sixty parsecs, we can make it in ten jumps. Twenty weeks easy. A jump takes a week. Yes, but then there's moving in from the jump point to orbit, down to surface, refueling, liberty for the crew, restock, maintenance best done in a gravity well, system reports, updates, back to orbit, back out to the jump point, and jump. It adds a week to every jump. This ship does jump six. Most liners do jump three. Some maybe jump four. We'll be there in twice, I mean half, the time a jump three liner could. Rule four. Then think this through with me. I board a jump four liner at Capitol, headed for Shiwani, that's 60 parsecs, so 15 jumps. This is all on the main route, as a ship leaving every day. I genuinely wanted him to understand the process here. Rule three. At the first world, I transfer to a new ship. I'll probably have to wait a day for the connection, and I jump again. I figure that some important bureaucrat on an expense account traveling high passage can make the trip in 15 weeks plus 14 days. 119 days. This ship is half again faster than that liner, and that bureaucrat will beat us by three weeks. Excuse me, sir. You're comparing nuts to bolts. It's not the same ship getting there. I don't care about same or different. I want us at Shiwani before anyone else. How do we do that? I already knew the answer. I just needed him to know the answer. He stood frozen and recovered. He knew the answer. It was just not how this ship normally operated. Yes, sir. Revision 1. He tapped the console and brought up a route specifier. Tapped touch boxes and options. It registered answers immediately. Optimal route at jump 6. 57 parsecs. Every waypoint has a gas giant. 
break out 100D from the gas giant, maneuver at best possible speed to it, on average half a day. Skim the atmosphere for fuel. Race back out to 100D and jump. We spend a day in each system. 57 parsecs, 10 jumps, 10 weeks plus 10, no, 9 days, 79 days. I smiled. That puts us there about 181. Yes, sir. Finalize that course. Let's see if we can break some records. 102-736, aboard BF Likonier in orbit above Core Sector, 2017. Onan, E576321-7, Low Population World, Imperial Reserve. It took a while adjusting to the change in height. I just walked these corridors with my eyes just below nameplate level. Now I saw them from above. I found the effect disconcerting. My identification card said Marine Sergeant Nin Agilan, and I didn't know the name's origin. What world? What race? We all followed the short Marquis and the Newt back through the ship. The Marquis pointed to me. I want this Marine Sergeant to go down to the palace. He has his instructions. Give him what he needs. I stepped out of the line and started immediately and spoke to the first Marine Sergeant I saw. Take me to the armory. Over the next many hours, I impressed four Marines into a de facto security squad, researched what I needed, and dropped to the palace in a fast lander. We had codes that passed us through checkpoints, and maps and schematics with several potential locations. When necessary, I posted my squad away from my tasks. I did not want to risk their futures by betraying what I was doing. I did not sleep. The next morning I met with the Marquis Irulan. We exchanged our wafers, knowing the pain that was coming. Then my squad and I returned to Likonir. I was met by Lieutenant Damala, and we exchanged wafers privately. The pain was excruciating, worse than before. Likonir departed for Vland and beyond within an hour. 103-736, Core Sector 2017, Onan, E-576-321-7, Low Population World, Imperial Reserve. I met with the Viscountess Adapa and briefed her on the progress of the plan. I pointed out some long-term issues with regard to proxies, and suggested how they might be resolved, or assured her that the current crisis would abate successfully. With her satisfied, I had little to do but wait. I gave my report to the Empress. I arranged to give it over dinner. The time was blocked free. I was accustomed to doing as I saw fit. I told her that I had sent a wafer clandestinely to the fleet at Shiwani in the hands of a cover mission that would distract attention. Nothing could be traced, there was no record trail that could be uncovered. The political crisis would be avoided. She asked probing questions. I gave candid answers. My report ended at about the same time as the meal. Your Majesty, forgive me for my presumption. She looked at me briefly and then, Yes? I knew your grandmother, Arbalatra. I served her before she became regent. She visited this world in an attempt to negotiate with Gustus. I set down my eating utensil, molded my napkin, and stood. Are you ready for an adventure? This stopped her for a moment. Then she flung caution to the air and stood herself. Yes. I started a monologue about Arbalatra clandestinely visiting this world in search of Gustus, of how some crew on her flagship had previously served at this palace here on Onan, and how they knew of the abandoned tunnels and warrens. 
Arbolatra personally led four squads of star marines in a harrowing nap-of-the-planet flight to the edge of the city. Meanwhile, a formation of cutters broadcasting neutral IFF landed in the plaza before the ceremonial gates to plead for a meeting with the head of household, only to be ignored. The invading marines bashed through the rusting iron grates, dashed for kilometers through murky darkness, crashed through collapsed barricades, and ultimately flashed up an access shaft to the edges of the central citadel. She laughed at my silly phrasing. I took her hand and we ourselves dashed out of the apartment and into the long hallway. I violated a dozen rules of protocol, but confirmed that I had her trust. Does rule one apply when I am talking to the Empress herself? Let me show you, I said. The panel is down this side branch. I had her. She who was always in control. She who had in all her life ruled the grandest empire in the galaxy. She who had surrendered her life to power, and was even now surviving the greatest challenge to her legacy. She could afford a little fun. Down the hallway spur we reached a panel and I felt for the switch. It wasn't there, or I couldn't find it. But no matter. No, there it was. The false panel swung open. Beyond was a complete and finished room. Security staff clearly knew of its existence, but why would anyone ever tell the Empress? We followed the stair down three complete spirals. She giggled at the impertinence of it all. She had never seen this part of the palace, ever. Here the sparsely lit tunnels led to staff quarters and storerooms. Before us, however, was what I wanted. The bricked-up tunnel with an old disused door, near invisible under coats of paint and artful directional markings. I fumbled at its latch, and it opened with a touch. We stepped through. My comm set to bright showed us the disused corridor beyond, reaching back into the blackness. Come, just through here is where your grandmother lay in wait for Gustus. I was with her as she told me of her dreams for a greater empire than had ever been. She talked endlessly of her vision of a cosmopolitan, eclectic society, where every person had a chance of reaching his, or her, or its full potential. She listened with half an ear, giddy with her own victory and fascination, and this slightest shedding of convention. I stopped. I needed to speak my piece. Your Majesty, the plan has changed. She stopped as well. Changed? It is unworkable to scrub a world with fifty billion people in order to avoid a political crisis. Unworkable? It has already been decided. The instructions have been sent. Your wafer will be there to give the orders. The orders have been changed. That is unacceptable. Cold. She was her natural imperial self again. There is no alternative. But there is. Not by chance we were positioned with me blocking the exit. You've killed billions already. You speak with my voice, and people obey. Step aside. Majesty, you misunderstand me. I have spoken with the voice of the Emperor for four hundred years. I speak with your voice, but I serve the Empire. I swung the steel bar and caught the side of her head. I hope she died instantly. I moved to the roof support, hit it with my shoulder, and it gave way. Rule two. The calendar rules everyone's lives. Plans are made according to the grid of days and dates. Appropriate days are chosen by how they fit into personal obligations, the cultural expectations of society, and even accounting standards. Mid-previous year, the Empress and her counselors had finalized their course of action, which required substantial assets and considerable advanced planning. 
ships were diverted from patrols to the massive depot system in Massilia. Similar diversions were ordered in neighboring Zerushagar, Delphi, and Diaspora sectors. Blind contingent orders were issued so that even the admirals commanding did not know their final destinations. Announcements and press briefings spoke of goodwill tours, relief efforts, and the inherent strength of the Imperial Navy. On 002, after everyone had a chance to celebrate holiday and the start of the new year, each of the massive fleets departed their respective depots. Restricted to the speed of their slowest ships, these fleets practiced coordinated jumping and coordinated refueling at gas giants. Destination systems were not announced. The arrival of the fleets was a matter of speculation and debate in the media and in commerce. Phasers on Liberty represented a substantial contribution to many local economies. With four fleets on extended tours, their visits prompted excitement, but not fear. Refresher training on a variety of subjects brought crews up to required standards without revealing specific areas of emphasis. In multi-star systems, ships practiced slingshot maneuvers and massive fighter deployments. In sparsely populated systems, ships practiced world scrubbing. In multi-gas giant systems, ships practiced hiding deep in hydrogen atmospheres in full stealth mode. Cooks had competitions preparing the most delicious meals for a thousand diners. Astrogators challenged each other to the fastest calculation time. Personnel officers ensured that crew deficiencies were remedied. New officers shadowed experienced ones to broaden their understandings. Marines practiced marksmanship, close combat. All were brought up to date in Edict 97 training. Margaret Three. Flash, 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 110-736. Margaret Olavia Alcalacoy, 34th Empress of the Grand Empire of Stars, hereditary co-duchess of Rylanor, Baroness Bland, died at 103-736 at Onan, the Imperial Retreat. More than a million grieving citizens filled the central Plaza of Heroes on Capitol to express their sorrow at the loss of their sovereign for the past 48 years. Prince Paolo, the emperor apparent, expressed his inconsolable distress at the loss of his sister and emphasized that the Imperium continues its dedication to the protection and support of its citizens. Crawlers on the screen gave times and locations of local memorial gatherings. Touch codes expanded for more information, historical data, and commentary by a spectrum of political commentators. 189-736 Aboard A.F. Crix, above Massilia Sector 1131, Ashavacuna, B-567-622-8, Agricultural World, Non-Industrial, Rich. Crix had arrived one system short of Shiwani, with two weeks to spare. She was fully refueled and waiting when M. Fleet arrived. Breakout flash. Another. Several. Many. Silence the alarm. Is the IFF working? Aye, sir. The scopes showed an initial wave of many ships, battles, sieges, and carriers, but also miners, tenders, scouts, and pickets. Over the next three hours, the sky above Ashava Kuna was alight with breakout flashes. The frequencies burned with broadcasts and beamcasts and datacasts. Nestled close to the naval base annex of the orbital high port, Crix was automatically labeled innocuous. The fleet went through its paces. It had no premonition of its true mission. 
This level of training and experience would influence naval operations for decades. Spacers would say, I was part of M Fleet, and proudly point to a multicolored experience medal. Their comrades would comment, or even make fun, while inwardly noting their own misfortune. Astrogation charts already told the fleet there was no gas giant. Ships moved to a single planetoid belt to secure ice chunks for refueling. Multiple layers of protectors screened the valuable capital ships. After about six hours, the flag was ready to deal with business. Captain Ginsa turned to his astrogator, It's time, and handed him the wafer. 189-736, aboard AF Crix, above Massilia Sector 1131, Ashavakuna, B-567-622-8, Agricultural World, Non-Industrial, Rich. I awoke, momentarily disoriented, but clear in what I expected. I opened my eyes to see the bridge of the Cricks. Tell me status. It is 1340-189-736. We are in Ashavakuna system. The fleet has broken out. We are in under-channel contact. Send my respects to the Admiral and tell him we bear an express from the Empress. Lieutenant Gensa, my host many weeks before, was captain, none the worse for my inhabitation. Actually, he was much better, a functionary in an obscure office of the bureaucracy, who probably never saw the Empress, plucked by the nobility from his desk to command a cutting-edge, fastest available courier ship to transport a message on strict deadline from the Empress to the Duke of Shiwani. He would be commended. He would be promoted. He would be ennobled. He would be applauded, provided, of course, the last several weeks went as planned. His discussions with my current host, Astrogator Lieutenant Lefian, probably implied similar rewards for him. I needed to take the proper steps, assuming all went well. Rule 5. 202-736, aboard EC Unicorn, above... Massilia Sector, 1430, Shiwani, AA86831-C, Rich World, Pre-Agricultural, Pre-High Population, Ancient Sites. Even the Empress cannot make the impossible happen. What if the Duke of Shiwani were dead, ill, incapacitated? Close escort Unicorn, a workhorse of the fleet, and now captained by Lieutenant Lefian, had left for Shiwani a day before the fleet. Upon arrival, and after standard protocols confirmed our identity, we moved to near-world orbit and opened an encrypted channel to the office of the Duke. The Empress requires the Duke at the Wall of Heroes at 1200 tomorrow. The gatekeeper equivocated. His grace's schedule is very tight. I will see if we can arrange a time that is mutually agreeable. If necessary, we will send a shuttle to deliver him. Bricks arrived a few hours later to hang motionless in space until it received its cue. 203-736, above Cricks, above Massilia Sector, 1430, Shiwani, AA86831-C, Rich World, Pre-Agricultural, Pre-High Population, Ancient Sites. At about mid-morning, the very first of M Fleet's ships shed arrival energy. The auxiliary was almost immediately followed by a dreadnought, and then another. We have the first breakout. Crick's sensop began narrating the arrivals. In immediate response, its Captain Ginsa gave the order to move, 
and it began its carefully pre-planned drive for the planet below. It would hit near-world orbit an hour before noon. All the while during its two-hour journey, more ships of N-Pleet arrived to hang motionless in Shiwani's skies. A signal from Unicorn confirmed that arrangements were in place. Cricks grounded within sight of the wall, the precise location selected to minimize walking distance and maximize visual impact. The local spectral F star sun, high to the south, and brightening the wall's face. They would approach with its glare on their backs. Kavax and Kuslis Shorn emerged in their dress-white formal uniforms, escorted by six Marines, two forward, two lateral, two behind. Their training and ceremonial presentations was clearly up to date. It was a slight that the Duke was not present to greet the arrival of Cricks. They ignored it. His shuttle just arrived, on the far side. Slow down just a bit. Let him scurry into place. Kuslis Shorn verbalized her acknowledgement, and they slowed their pace. The Wall of Heroes commemorates the fallen of the Empire. Size and structure varies with the world. In this case, it was two soaring wings embracing a central obelisk set on a concourse overlooking the city. The Duke stepped out from the base of the wings, looking annoyed. He was accompanied by ten other officials, assistants, and helpers. They all stood slightly back. One scuttled forward to speak with the reservists, only to be ignored. Press drones circled discreetly. Kavex, carrying the imperial banner in both hands, walked directly to the Duke and held out the flag. The Duke started to speak, but they ignored him. Whatever he said, when he was finished, Kusla Shorn spoke. The Empress conveys her greetings to the Gionee as members of the Empire. She dispensed with the salute. She and Kavex turned immediately and walked back to the ship. They didn't say anything. Imagers could see and image interpreters could hear. Instead, the Duke stood stiffly until the navels left. Then he gave some instructions. Guards hauled down the Imperial banner currently flying above the memorial and hauled up this gift from the Empress. It waved, as protocol demanded, a flag height higher than the Shiwani world banner. Patriotic music welled around them, and when it was done, the Duke and his entourage carefully made their way back to their transport. Safely inside their vehicle. She knows. So what? She can't do anything. The vote at the close of the moot is already certain. That fleet can do something. But it won't. Then why did she do all this? No message. No discussions. This was a message. Various advisors issued orders and statements. One expressed solidarity with the Empire. Another was exhilarated with the special attention the Empress had bestowed on this important world and sector. Observers gave opinions about the future, the past, the present. The discussion channels were abuzz for days. The fleet left two days later. Its abrupt departure was its own message. Millions in potential profits vanished when the spacers did not visit and the supply barges did not fly. There were suitable explanations made from world government, but the Navy itself was silent on the matter. 204-736, Massilia Sector, 1430, Shiwani, AA86831-C, Rich World, Pre-Agricultural, Pre-High Population, Ancient Site. Outward from the capital, the news of the Empress' death spread at the speed of jump. Five parsecs every week, doggedly trailing cricks. 
but it first had to reach capital, a full seven-day disadvantage, and would propagate not at the experimental speed of pricks, but at more conventional jump four or jump five. The news arrived the next day. Epilogue 116-736, Core Sector 2118, Capital, A586-A98-D, High Population World, Imperial Capital. The Grand Palace was lit in morning blue. City lights and street illuminators were shrouded to create a swath of shadow for five kilometers in every direction. News imagers continued to broadcast and record for rebroadcast throughout the Empire, the striking scene marking the passing of a beloved empress. During Margaret's lifetime, the title Emperor Apparent had never been spoken. With her death, it was on everyone's lips. Her fraternal twin, born 22 minutes later, had been in eternal eclipse. Now, at age 52, he would emerge from her umbra to ascend the Iridium throne. He thought, but only to himself, it's about time. Where once he had to be satisfied with a few loyal retainers, he was now besieged with supplicants and newfound friends anxious to establish themselves with gifts and words of wisdom. His trusted seneschal Mand was proving himself quite capable in fending off most of them. The Viscountess Adapa was one of the sea of supplicants, disadvantaged by her lack of height and by her gravidity, somewhat also by the fact that her wet clothes tended to off-put others. She worked her way to the front of the queue several times, only to be rebuffed each. At the margins of the crowd, she waited for her chance, which never seemed to come. After an hour, she visited the fresher annex to re-wet her coat and headband. There she encountered another newt doing the same. How long can this go on, she asked. It will have to at least lull for the actual funeral day after tomorrow. Then we'll pick up again, probably for a year. Forgive my lack of protocol. I am the Viscountess Adapa, late counselor to... No matter. It is my pleasure to meet you. I am Tetepo Babsika, alas, only an adjunct to Seneschal Mand. Until last week, I worked half days and visited art museums in the afternoons. Now, he shrugged, and I am pleased to meet you. She paused. Tetepo paused as well. Newt naturally excelled at the administrative and the bureaucratic. Chance meetings were part of the process. He volunteered. Perhaps you have a question. Indeed I do. Protocol required an ask. Can you perhaps give me an answer? Her question was accompanied by the particular gesture that the species used to convey both supplication and promise of reward, a particular almost invisible flick of the wrist. It would be uncouth to actually specify the reward. Minutes later, the Viscountess Adapa followed Adjunct Tetepo through the other fresher exit and passed a checkpoint. They were soon before manned with an allowance of fifteen seconds to present a case. I seek no reward or favor for myself, she said in order to start their dialogue. I have an item of policy that the Empress herself desired, but it was unfinished before her untimely passing. Can it not wait, said the Seneschal, starting to turn away. It cannot. This required both tact and eloquence. Adapa tried to compress every fact and detail she could into fifteen seconds. There is a flaw in the proxy process that could spell drastic changes 
in the imperial structure, to the disadvantage of the empress, and now to the emperor. She had a simple solution, but had not yet implemented it. The emperor apparent has the ability to act now, and with a simple stroke of a pen, to remove the problem forever. 22 seconds. Show me. The Lady Adapa explained in greater detail the proxy option process and the GNE scheme for an autonomous region. This was harder without the accompanying image support, but she recited her briefing with them in her mind's eye. She omitted some details. She planned to retire to her remote fiefs with her newborn well before news of the scrubbing of Shiwani came some half a year from now. She estimated news would arrive on or about 310, mid-fourth quarter. Nobles in exile at least survived. From far away, she could profess ignorance of any of the details. If she stayed, she could lose her head, and it would not regrow. But she did have this particular duty to the Empress, and she would do her best to fulfill it. Seneschal Mand found the proposal reasonable. This interim period, when all proxies were cancelled by the death of the Sovereign, was indeed the perfect time to implement a change. Adapa's draft imperial order made perfect sense. Henceforth, the emperor would recognize only integral proxies. Mand told the two to wait. They waited an hour, and then two. Mand finally returned and noticed them. Oh, yes, the proclamation will be published shortly after the funeral. The emperor apparent understood, and he agreed completely. Then I thank you for your gracious attention. He started toward the door. The Emperor Apparent has decided that it will fall to you to administer the bureaucratic aspects of the proxies themselves. A new central registry. There will be a flurry of registrations almost immediately, but after the first year, it surely becomes a sinecure, a very nice position. You'll be a countess by the end of the year. Adjunct Tatepo smiled in anticipation of his own reward. The Lady Adapa was less sanguine. This has been Agent of the Imperium, a story of the Traveler Universe, written by Mark Miller, narrated by Mark Miller, with Darlene Miller as Anna. Incidental music by Matt Adcock. Copyright 2015, Mark Miller. Production copyright 2016 by Mark Miller, with production by Bombsite Studios.